Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. This week, breaking our format of looking at movies that aren't in any way on the list of the top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and unfortunately the fellowship has been broken due to a scheduling snafu entirely on my own end. I'm unfortunately flying solo as the host of this podcast. Uh, Andrew has gone to drop the podcast into Mount Doom. We're hoping he'll be back next week. Uh, but it's okay, because I'm joined by two fantastic writers of Rohe... Rohain? Rohain? This is a great start to the podcast. <laughs> Rohe, uh, Rohan. But, <laughs> Ro, Ro, <laughs> but first of all, joining us, uh, returning from last year, um, joining us for the discussion of Fellowship of the Ring, discussing the Two Towers, which we're talking about this week, the wonderful Grace Duffy. How are you, Grace? I'm well, thank you. I hope all of you are well also. Yes. And joining us fresh for this discussion, a guest it has been far, far too long since we've had you on, the wonderful <laughs> Charlene Lydon. How are you, Charlene? Hello, good, thank you. Happy Christmas, everybody. Now, we talked a lot last year about the production of the trilogy as a whole, because obviously the films were shot together. We're not going to delve too much into that this year. So if you want to get into the production and the development of the movies, go back and listen to last year's episode. But one of the things that did come up, and I think it came up particularly from Grace was the idea that these movies have kind of become annual Christmas traditions. They are sort of Christmas movies after a fashion. And I think part of that is down to the fact that, you know, obviously they're long movies, they're designed, you can watch them at Christmas when you have time off to do it. But also a large part of kind of seasonal revivals of these movies happen around Christmas time well, as well. that and also they were originally released in December. They were. Indeed. So it was like an annual kind of... December, Christmas, New Year thing when they came out. It was indeed. And fam good excuses for family trips as well, I think you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, as well. But uh, we mentioned the Lighthouse Cinema in Dublin does, or used to do marathons every Christmas of the extended editions of these movies. It was go in in the morning, come out possibly past midnight, uh, bring your own snacks, uh, embrace the culture and the atmosphere and the vibe of it. 1am. <laughs> Well, yeah. Desperately looking for a night link coming up to Christmas. A great experience. Everybody should live it at least once. Mm -hmm. uh, but Charlene, I think you were the Lighthouse programmer who organized those. And I just wanted to ask, like, what was it that kind of made you go, that is something that should absolutely be an annual tradition? Well, because I wanted to go. <laughs> That's the answer to pretty much everything. Um, uh, yeah, like I just really, I'm just a selfish, selfish person. But, you know, you try these things once and like if they work, you do it again. But like it always works. Um, so it certainly didn't start off as an annual thing, but it just became annual or like whenever we could find space. Like so it might be once a year, maybe twice a year. And it was generally kind of towards the end of November because or actually it has it has also been kind of like post Christmas, uh, post Christmas, just before New Year's as well, because um, it's either sort of like the lull before Christmas, like just like that nice period where you're not like busy every day for all of December or that lull after Christmas where you're sitting around and all you want to do is watch Lord of the Rings. So like, yeah. So, I mean, we did it. God, I mean, I can't remember the first one was like probably 2013 or 14. And uh, it was kind of one of those things where probably everybody was like, oh, Charlene, this probably won't work. <laughs> um, so we put it in screen three, which is like 100 seats or thereabouts. And then like immediately people were mad about it and we had to bump it up to screen one. I think the it was just before COVID. So probably 2019, we had three screens of Lord of the Rings 
So like that's about what? 450 odd people. And that would have been and the extended edition. That. Yeah, it was wow. insane. <laughs> and and obviously those things are synchronized as well. I think like Grace kind of mentioned that they take breaks and stuff, obviously between movies. Yeah. So if you have three screens in the lighthouse housing 400 people, <laughs> like those screens all come out at the same time. That's got to be an well, amazing atmosphere. We made sure that there was like half hour staggering between oh. screens. So, but what that means, the opposite of like everyone coming out at once is that there's no break for our staff. So it's kind of like, Okay, Every half hour, there's a new stream of people. So like, yeah. it was really hard. <laughs> and like, everyone's starving. And, you know, you want people to stay yeah. in the building, but you're also kind of hoping, oh, God, please let some people go out and get some food somewhere. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. there's just it's the queues are huge. Daylight. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so like there and it is intense. Like, I mean, it is from noon till after 1am if it's the extended ones we've done both because every time we do the extended people are like would you not just do the theatrical and then whenever we do the theatrical there's uproar because everyone wants <laughs> the extended so we just do we just mix it up a little bit I prefer the extended versions it doesn't feel right if it's just a theatrical like bits of the movies are missing it's I know like, it's, it's weird. not the full experience <laughs> yeah I know anybody can do like a theatrical marathon of Lord of the Rings oh That's, yeah you know it's just you yeah, you know, that's anyone like could a, do 12 hours. <laughs> yeah, it's when you bump it up to like 14, 15, that's when you start to get the actual like experts and professionals. Yeah. Um, but like, so, but it, it it is like, it's it's an incredible experience. Um, and it's just, it's a congratulations. So you mentioned that you programmed it in large part out of curiosity because you liked the films a lot. Do you remember the first time that you saw uh, the Lord of the Rings movies? And I know we're talking specifically about the two towers, but like, the Fellowship of the Ring, the Two Towers. Do you have a memory of seeing these movies in cinemas? Oh, yeah. So like the first one, Fellowship, like I have no real interest in fantasy or like even like action kind of stuff. Just doesn't really do it for me. Um, So I remember the first one was coming out and I was kind of like mildly curious because it was such a big deal. But like I wasn't super excited about it. And I had like a stomach bug or something. And I went with all of my friends and like was violently ill about half an hour in. And I was like, shit, I actually was really enjoying that. So I had to like, <laughs> I had to go home. I couldn't, I couldn't stay. And then I just brought myself back about a week later on my own. I watched it in the cinema in Carlo and, and I just loved it. Like I just took such a notion to like, like in favor of it. I was just like, oh my God, okay, this is for me. And and then the next two, as they were released, were complete events for me. So like yeah. the two towers, I remember watching with all my friends um, in Carlo again. And then the return of the king. I was one of those weirdos who queued up at like 9 a.m. Sydney World and was on the news with all of my college friends. Aww. <laughs> Aww. Uh, but we had stayed up the night before to watch all to watch the first two. Oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> to make sure that you could follow along. Yeah. Because well, yeah, that, that's obviously, that's pre, that's pre the midnight screening stuff. Yeah. That's pre like marathons leading up to the midnight screening we stuff. We had to do our own at home. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting how film culture has changed so dramatically in those like intervening 20 years at this day. Yeah. Um, but, but Grace, you mentioned last year, obviously you talked about like seeing the first one in cinemas. Um, <laughs> do you remember, do you have any particular memories of this one, of the two towers? Is the two towers like a, a singular experience or is it? part of the group part of the whole no it was a singular experience in the sense that like when fellowship came out I wasn't really I think I'd read the hobbit but I wasn't familiar with the stories itself and I just remember me and my brother and sister being really hooked on it from the trailers um so then after we saw fellowship 
we all got really obsessed with it <laughs> and I got the books and I had read through them by the time the two towers came out so I had a better idea of what to expect and was much more invested in it so it felt like a much bigger deal even like there was something really innocent about how about seeing fellowship but with the two towers I was like oh my god this is an event this is a huge thing and like you know I recognized the characters and the trailers and different things like that so it felt very um I don't know it felt very homely or something when it happened and yeah because it was we usually went to see them on new year's eve so um which seems unfathomable now that you'd wait like a week and a half after they came out to see them but you know we didn't have internet or anything at the time <laughs> so it wasn't like you'd be in danger of of seeing things that everyone else knew two weeks before you like that was just not part of the experience so um so yeah it was a big deal and i think this this one is still my favorite of the three of them so um, I think maybe that might be part of it too, because it was just the one I was I was probably most excited about, just because it still felt new. Um, but I had learned so much about it just in the years since the other one came out. Yeah, because it had, it had very much taken over culture. Like again, we we talked last year about the production, of the first one, and how it was like this huge gamble for New Line Cinema that could possibly like sink the studio uh, if it went horribly wrong because they were filming all three of these movies simultaneously in New Zealand, mm -hmm. and how they're kind of a little bit trepidatious about the first one and in fact actually like there are stories about the trouble all the stories about the trouble production of the two towers come from that phase when they were shooting the three movies together and the studio had no idea what was you know going on the story of like peter jackson filming helms deep and getting phone calls from like you know hollywood basically and making a point of having the executive who had the phone having to run all the way up the set to him rather than him coming down to talk to the phone because he was busy being a director um, and the kind of power plays that result from that. But it's like, yeah, we, how, why are you spending so much money? What's going to happen? Are we all going to have to look for new jobs when this comes out in December? And obviously it comes out in December. It is a massive success. It makes over $800 million, the, the first one Fellowship does. And what's interesting is that you get this shift, perhaps is probably the best way to describe it, where... Lord of the Rings kind of goes from being this thing that everybody's like, well, that's never going to work. The Los Angeles Times is going to do pieces about how nobody's going to see this, how this is how fantasy doesn't appeal to American audiences, to it becoming a cultural phenomenon. You obviously have in the middle of that the release of the DVD, which is a big deal, the release of the extended edition, uh, which I think comes out in like September, October, November-ish, like just in time to catch attention to ride into the two towers. But you also have Jackson, who is now like cock of the walk, getting to go to New Line and Warner Brothers and say, well, look, you guys tied my hands during the production and post-production on Fellowship. I get to do whatever I want during the post-production of The Two Towers. And there's a bit of debate when you talk to people involved in the movies about how much of The Two Towers was always there and how much of it resulted from the success of Fellowship, where... Jackson is like, oh, no, we, sh we shot all the all the footage beforehand. Uh, the scripts were all written beforehand. It, you know, we just edited it afterwards. It was, you know, we had some challenges doing that, but it, it, it would have been the same movie anyway. And Viggo Mortensen's like, no, when they brought us back to do reshoots in New Zealand, it was basically a new movie. Um, the amount of post-production, particularly CGI involved in this movie, makes it basically a new movie. Things like Gollum, which I'm sure we'll talk about when we get to spoilers, they only began animating Gollum. Um, in December twenty, sorry, in December two thousand and one, after the movie had come out, 
because they realized that they had enough money to do it properly. They have the model from Fellowship who appears in a few shots. It's a CGI model. Weta aren't happy with it. But apparently the movie made enough like money on opening that they're like, no, we can actually spend money to do this. Weta, I believe, doubled their staff after the first movie came out uh, to 260 people. They also doubled the processing power on the CGI kind of or special effects rendering technology that they had, the equipment, the physical equipment. And apparently Jackson also managed to convince like New Line Cinema to fund a 24-hour working office between New Zealand, London, and uh, Los Angeles. So that staff were literally working around the clock to render all the special effects shots in this movie. Notable, for example, that like the Two Towers contains about 600 special effects shots, VFX shots. That's 80 more than Fellowship, so that's a gain of somewhere around 16%. Uh, in order to save time on production, because obviously this had to be out by the following Christmas, like a lot of this, uh, these files and kind of sound mixes and assets were transferred over the internet, the very early days of the internet. This was the first one of the first times the studios were doing this. I think around the same time the Wachowski sisters were over making like the Matrix sequels uh, in Australia. And like you have stories about like Warner Brothers executives talking about the horrors of seeing the phone bill as they were sending these massive assets over the internet. I think like Jackson was smart enough to sign a deal with New Zealand telecoms to allow him to send these files without accruing any of those bills. So it's kind of interesting that the Two Towers is this weird thing that both obviously exists as an object that was filmed at the same time as the first one, but also a film that gets infinitely larger as a result of the success of the first one, kind of simultaneously, and kind of the tension that exists there. And I think you can see that in the extended edition, where the theatrical cut of these movies... The theatrical cut of Fellowship runs 2 hours and 58 minutes. The theatrical cut of this runs 2 hours and 59 minutes. But the extended cut, the extended cut of Fellowship, which is like he's working on up until release before the movie's a success, only adds something like 15 minutes, maybe 17 minutes to the the actual cut. The extended cut of this adds somewhere in the region of 40 minutes, uh, which gives you a sense of like Jackson is is off the leash here. He's doing whatever he wants and has complete creative freedom. Um, all right. So just before we before we jump into this, just general thoughts. Like, Charlene, do you have any particular thoughts about The Two Towers? as distinct from Fellowship. Do you see this as three separate movies or is it one movie told in three parts? Uh, that's, I mean, they all have their own identities to me. Like, I think the Fellowship has a lot of the kind of like um, cosy moments in the in the Shire that like makes it very comfortable kind of a watch. Um, like the, it's a bit more of a cosy, warm blanket. And then this is like the war one. Mm-hmm. And then the last one is like the one with all the endings. And uh, so they, they do have their own separate identities. And even like color wise, I kind of, I don't know if this is marketing, but like in my brain, they're sort of like, this is the brown one. <laughs> <You know? laughs> mm-hmm. But like they do have their own identities to me, but like I definitely feel like they you can watch all three in a row and they feel like one movie, you know. Mm-hmm. And Grace, you mentioned this is your favourite one and we'll undoubtedly get into the particulars of it in the spoiler zone, but like mm-hmm. at a high level, what does this one have that the other two don't? I know you love all three, but what is it that gives this one the edge? I think um, it's probably a combination of things. I think the the run of the story, the trajectory of the story in this fits really well just in and of its own right because I think with the with the Rohan storyline and the big battle at Helm's Deep, you kind of have a sense of it being almost self-contained in ways that the other two don't feel as much. So it just, that aspect of it is quite satisfying. You see like the beginning of a conflict, the escalation of a conflict and the 
climax of a conflict, even though it's set within a much longer story with all these different strands that kind of develop and move along in the background. Um, I think that's why I like it because um, like, and like you say, I love all of them, but fellowship has a real sense of like, we're setting everything up and a lot happens, but there's so much more to come. And then Return of the King is wrapping so much of that up. Whereas I think if you were kind of a neutral viewer, so to speak, in my mind anyway, the Two Towers has like a nice self-contained three-act structure as well as um, all the extenuous stuff that's continuing from the movies before and after. And I mean, it is interesting kind of just before we talk about the movie in depth, just to like consider its reputation. Because one of the things that I find interesting about The Two Towers is that it is generally seen as the lesser of the three movies. It is the lowest ranked of the movies on the IMDb 250, which we all know is an objective measure of the movie's quality. Absolutely. Um, it was just a bit less well-received than Fellowship of the Ring was in terms of critical response. Uh, Slate, for example, called it, quote, a glorious mess. Uh, Manola Dargis, writing in the Los Angeles Times, called it a bit of a yawn that was just passing through on our way to the end. Um, it at the Oscars, it picked up a couple of nominations. I think it picked up seven nominations, but that's far fewer uh, than both Fellowship and Return of the Kings. Uh, I think it's like half of what Return of the King won and half of what Fellowship was nominated for. In particular, Jackson didn't get a Best Director nomination for the movie. And there is this kind of sense that it was kind of the forgotten of the set. It's the one that kind of just happens in the middle and I kind of, I find that interesting because I'm very much like Grace. I kind of expect to come on here and be the person arguing kind of the contrary position. But I, I do think for me, this is easily the best of the set. Uh, all right, then, before we jump into the Spore Zone, three questions to get us started. Uh, so I think, Grace, to get us started there, do you think that The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Yeah, I would include it. I mean, I, I personally would have to include all three of them just for... Well, obviously, I think they're self-evidently masterpieces, but in terms of like the seismic influence they had on um, cinema and on culture and the way they just seized the mindset of the world, I think that's a, it makes them all kind of cultural ar artifacts that should be um, objectively recognized in that um, way. Yes, because the, the list is objectively the best yes, movies ever made. Precisely. It's, 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 they've got numbers next to them and <laughs> therefore it's it's valid. Um, I should point out, by the way, I say that it is less well received. What, it's got like a 9.1 instead of 9.4. <laughs> yeah, 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 like just to put this in, in ranking order, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King is the seventh greatest movie of all time. The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Rings is the ninth greatest movie of the time. And you, you do have to scroll your browser window down slightly to get to number 13, <laughs> The Two Towers. Shocking. So just to put this in perspective, and, and for Charlie... I didn't realise that, actually. I didn't realise they were so high up. Um, well, I think... I'm delighted, like, but... <laughs> no issue there. <laughs> um, not not at all, uh, kind of, like, not objecting or anything like that. I think it's it's because they're kind of, like, perfectly positioned in terms of what the list is. Like, myself and Andrew joke, the, the IMDb is perfect for being, like, 12 in 1999. That's, <laughs> yeah. like, the platonic ideal of the list. Yeah. So these three Pretty movies much. coming out makes them perfect. I being mean, a 12-year-old boy, specifically. That Yes, yes, that is that is very fair. Like, it's worth noting, like, The Fellowship of the Ring is right below Pulp Fiction. Um, Return of the King is right below Schindler's List. There's an interesting choice. And Charlene, you'll appreciate this one. The Two Towers is directly below Fight Club. Oh! <laughs> to situate this list as a 12-year-old boy in 1999. But Charlene, what about you? Do you think that this movie belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies of all time? And since we have the number now, is it, do you think it's the 13th best movie ever made? Yes. 
Like, <laughs> whenever I try to think of, like, my fav- my top ten or whatever, like, I can't have the Lord of the Rings take up three slots. So I'm always just like, I'll stick them all in there as one. Um, but specifically with regard to the Two Towers, I think it is objectively the best one. Like, they all, they're all, they all have their whatever, but um, I think it probably is. I would probably put it higher than the others. But uh, I definitely, yeah, in, in so many ways, like, it deserves to be there. Yeah. And I, I think for myself, I can probably agree, like, if you're making a list like this with it being the lowest of the three, because I think that, like, Fellowship has the burden of starting this thing mm-hmm. and Return of the King has the burden of ending these things. And, you know, I maybe don't like those movies as much as I like this one, but I think that there's an argument for both of them doing that in a way that is, like, genre defining. Mm-hmm. Like, Fellowship proves that, like, you can do this sort of fantasy and audiences will come out to do it, and that makes it a worthy cultural inclusion. Return the King is like, you can turn the ending of this thing that nobody thought would work into a cultural event mm. that, like, just in... It's it's a victory lap for itself. And I'm kind of like, I admire the indulgence of that. I think if you're compiling a list of, like, seismic cultural moments, it's on there. I think The Two Towers is just a really good film. And oddly enough, like, if you're compiling a list of the 250 greatest movies, I'm like... Does that mean that it ranks lower than the other two? And it probably does, because it's the one where it's like, how do you track the specific legacy of this movie in terms of cinema? Um, That said, we'll get to the next question uh, in a second. But Grace, what about your own personal 250 favorite movies? So this is your favorite of the set. Mm -hmm. Is this in your top 10 movies ever? Is this in your top five? Is this your favorite movie ever? It's not my favorite, but it would be in the top five, I think. To the extent that I can ever put together like a ranked list for these things um but yeah no it, it's one of like the trilogy as a whole is i would call it like one 12 hour movie whatever way you want to put it um would be in my top 10 and if i had to pick just one of them i'd probably pick this one so yes in short <laughs> um and charlene what, like for yourself your own personal list like how where does this rank for you is it on there yeah i, I feel like um the last time i did try to put together a list like it it's on there but it's almost an afterthought because it's so much in my heart and soul I don't know even know that I think of it like I don't know it's weird um but yeah like it's, it's just for granted it's assumed <laughs> exactly it's like yeah it's there it's like it's in my top 10 somewhere yeah for sure and yet for myself this is the thing where I I worry I, again I talked about last year with fellowship I admire the Lord of the Rings movies more than I actively like them um, I think they are tremendous. They're not in your soul. <laughs> no, 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 they are not in my soul. They are not. They are not like as taken as granted or as read when when Darren ranks his favorite movies of all time. Um, but I, I I admire them as technical accomplishments. I think they're phenomenally well made. I think they are culturally important and significant. I think they've had a huge impact on cinema internationally. Um, I, I love the joy that they bring to people, but they don't work for me as well as they work for other people, and that is okay. If there were one of them that were creeping up on my my own personal list, creeping up around the low 250s-ish. It would probably be The Two Towers. I think The Two Towers is easily my favorite of Jackson's like six Middle Earth films. Uh, I think it, it, it a large part of it's down to, to what Grace said. It, it works as a film of itself. It's also the point at which you don't have to worry about setup or payoff, as, as kind of Grace mentioned as well. You don't have the obligations that or commitments that the other two have. Uh, and I think it it just it's it's visceral and it's it's assured of itself and it's just doing its business, which I kind of admire in it, where it's just like, yep, yeah, we don't have to, you know, we don't have to do this other stuff. We can just be what a Lord of the Rings movie should be. Uh, so, yeah, I think maybe it's in my 250, but it will be very, very, very low. All right, then. And finally, 
before we jump into the spoiler zone, Grace, if listeners have not seen The Two Towers, or maybe even just haven't seen it in a while, <laughs> would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device? And, I think you've already answered this one, but would you recommend a first-time viewer start with the theatrical cut or the extended cut? Um. So yes, if you somehow haven't seen it yet, then you should watch it immediately. This is how I know I'm getting old, right? Where I have to start to stop and think to myself, I now work with people who were born in like the year 2000 or something, who were two when this came out. So somehow this will have passed over a lot of their heads, which is insanity. So yes, if you haven't seen it, you should, you know, remedy that immediately. And what was the second part of the question? I've forgotten. (laughs) (laughs) Theatrical or extended for a first time viewer? Oh, I guess maybe go with the theatrical for a first time viewer. But I don't know, there's a lot of nice stuff in the extended version of this, so... But if you're new, then the theatrical is probably a better place to start. You will better appreciate the extended cut if you have a sense of what it was like beforehand, I think. All right. And then, Charlene, what about yourself? If listeners have not seen The Two Towers, would you recommend that they pause the podcast, find a cinema that is running a 14-hour marathon of the extended (laughs) cuts, sit themselves down and watch it? But should they they watch it if it's your first time? Do you have a preference, extended or theatrical? I think, yes, definitely. Um, I do tend to... Like, I... I would probably prefer to watch the extended ones, but like I do tend to say to people like, you know, don't bother with the extended ones if you're chicken, uh, which means that <laughs> that'll sort the men from the boys <laughs> in terms of their commitment. But uh, yeah, I, I think the theatrical ones work really well. And so that's fine. But um, it's 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 more complicated than that. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, I would probably just go, you know, if you haven't watched it by now, you're probably not that interested. So I would probably make sure to let them know that the extended versions are actually good and not just like stupid, like hubris. Yeah. Um, but that if you if you feel like you don't want to overcommit, then the theatrical versions are fine. We will be talking about the Hobbit movies in an unrelated note in a couple of years, I'm sure. Uh, speaking Ugh. of hubris. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, Jackson himself, I think, has come out and said he like he considers the theatrical cuts to be his cuts and the extended cuts are for like nerds like him. <laughs> yeah. um, it's basically how he phrases it in the most affectionate manner possible. Um, and, and for myself, yeah, absolutely. Watch it. Um, I I watched last year because we had more time because the podcast had a bit more space. I was able to like watch all of Jackson's Lord of the Rings movies, uh, all of Jackson's Middle Earth movies, all of the extended cuts of those Middle Earth movies, and then kind of circle back around and see it all holistically. This time we're on a bit of a tighter schedule, as listeners may have guessed from the lack of co-hosts that this episode has. <laughs> um, so I didn't have time to do that, but I did get to watch this movie and it, I was just again blown away by the scale and the majesty of it it is a film that is stunning to look at it is immaculately constructed the production design on this thing is amazing it deserves as big a screen as as you can find for it and you know whether or not that's a cinema or whether it's a home media system no judgment whatever works but like it's it's not something to watch on your phone is what i'm saying if you can find a bigger screen for it it absolutely deserves and rewards that uh, if you can find a good sound system in particular the sound mix is amazing on it it's just Again, at the risk of sounding very Harry Styles, it's a movie that feels like a movie, man, you know? <laughs> I, I I was just mind blown by the spectacle of it. And it's, it's always when I go back to it, it's kind of amazing. I've seen this a few times and every time I go back to it, I'm like, wow, they actually did that. And you would think that there would come a point. And it's aged well. Yes. Like it is aged phenomenally well. Yeah, it's aged really well. Yeah. 
Um, and particularly, like, given that it's doing a lot of CGI stuff as well, like, compared to, like, to pick a hypothetical example of another trilogy from the turn of the millennium that, say, had a computer-generated character in it, I can't think of one off the top of my head. It's, it's my memory is just kind of <laughs> jar-jarring a little bit here. Um, but I, I think that, like, if you were to compare it to work from around the same time, it holds up remarkably well. And I think its use of practical effects are, are astounding. I think we talked about it like last year where it's like they had people making chain mail for three years before they made the first movie. Yep. Like just literally linking hoops of metal into one another for costumes. Um, there's a scene here where we'll probably talk about it a bit later on, but where like Vigo Mortensen like just idly kicks a helmet that's lying on the ground, breaks his toe because it's made of real steel because the actual like production team didn't make it out of cardboard or clay or whatever. Um, like you could see all of that on screen and it's just yeah i wholeheartedly recommend it watch this uh watch it on as big a screen as possible take some time out put on some hot chocolate make yourself comfortable it's, it's a good christmas movie with that in mind then we'll segue neatly to the other side of the spoiler zone so charlene what is The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, about for you? God, you always ask this and I never know what to answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, friendship. <laughs> the, the real tower is the friendship we made along the way. Well, exactly. Well, because you're kind of watching a bunch. Friendship. Yeah. Family. <laughs> it's, about, it's about family like that it's like Vin Diesel it's about family it, it, it is exactly like Fast and Furious <laughs> um, I love the way the three like the three kind of threads so you have your your two your two hobbits going yeah. off to Mordor making dodgy friends along the way and then the other two hobbits making tree friends along the way and then all the other lads going off to Rohan and making new friends. <laughs> making beardy, beardy, long-haired um, friends along Creating the way. new fellowships everywhere they go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that. that. I actually love that idea that it's about how, you know, not one fellowship was nice, but now you get to have multiple fellowships. You can have even more. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, at its core, it's a story about like when you leave college and you start making different circles of friends <laughs> and you start acting differently around them. It, yeah, it's, it's it's really, it's basically his version of, of something like, uh, you know, the Goodwill Hunting. That's that's exactly what I think he's going for. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, you, you mentioned the, the structure of it. Like, again, this is the thing where apparently this was a, as we mentioned, like the, the post-production on this was very extensive, very involved. Uh, apparently there was a surprising amount of tension over it uh, in terms of, because as Jackson points out, he didn't, he doesn't have the clear structure here that he has on Fellowship of the Rings, where obviously like the the Fellowship breaks up and that is the end of your movie. It kind of writes itself. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and like the Return of the King, where you know, you defeat, spoiler alert for a movie that I'm guessing most people are aware of the end of. But yes, you defeat Sauron at the end of the Return of the King and the movie continues for a good hour afterwards. But like you have that kind good of- triumphs over evil. Yeah. We saw that coming. <laughs> Subverting your expectations. That, that's, what, that's what Jackson and Tolkien were doing there. But like Jackson, talked about how Two Towers doesn't have that and like obviously we'll talk specifically about maybe some of the changes later on but things like he moves is it Shalab the spider he moves her out of the Two Towers book 
into the Return of the King because he needs to give Frodo something to do there. <laughs> he creates a whole new plot around Faramir, who I believe fans call Far From the Bookamir, um, in order to, <laughs> like, stall the plot going on for ages. And I think that, like, Andy Serkis has said that the Smeagol flashback sequence that opens Return of the King... That was originally supposed to be in the Two Towers, and Jackson kind of decided to move it outside of the film because it didn't really work there. He's talked about how, like, when he was editing it, he would, like, be able to just move entire plot threads around. So there was, like, a cut of the movie where Gollum doesn't appear until, like, an hour and a half into the movie mm. uh, because he focused on the other plot threads first. And he was like, I was, like, the, that was the big challenge with the Two Towers was editing. Like, it was the post-production figuring out where everything goes, like, in relationship to one another, which I find interesting. And I think, like, to, to Charlene's point, and part of me is like, I wonder if this is why I like it because I'm a silly nerd, um, is the idea that it, it has that classic uh, second movie in a trilogy structure, like the Empire Strikes Back thing. To quote, I believe... Joss Whedon and Brian Singer, two people who we are not going to explore in any further depth, when they were talking about, like, X-Men 2, the, the movie that Whedon wrote and that Singer directed, where they said that, like, when they wanted to do a second X-Men movie, they wanted to do the Empire Strikes Back plot, where you split up the cast. You've established the cast, and then you split them up, and you start cutting across the plot lines to generate momentum. And I actually, watching The Two Towers, I was very impressed at how well edited it is. Mm. How all of the plot threads move at a really good tempo in relationship to one another, but they're also structured in ways that like echo and reverberate. So they don't, they don't feel, it doesn't feel like you're watching three separate movies that have just been chopped up and thrown in a barrel. It feels like you are watching one movie reverberating across three plot threads. So to pick an example, like a really small example, you have the sequence where uh, Frodo is talking to Gollum and he's like, Schmeagol, Schmeagol is your name. And Gollum's like, Schmeagol, Schmeagol, that was my name. And then you go from that to the sequence where in the woods, Aragorn meets with Gandalf, the white, and he's like, Gandalf. And it's like, yes, Gandalf was my name. And you have these kind of like interesting reverberating kind of themes or ideas across the three threads that make it feel more holistic in a way that, and but also make it seem bigger is the thing as well. Because it's like so much of this action is unfolding across so many planes, across such mm. a distance that it, it really does feel like an epic but grace you said this is your favorite lord of the rings movie mm -hmm. do you want to delve into that in depth like what what is it at its core about the two towers for you i think um so i suppose in addition to what i said earlier about how it just feels like the story is the most satisfying it's um rohan and what happened and that feels probably like the most realistic human like audience insert equivalent whatever way you want to put it like because they're they're just meant to be humans and they're kind of poor and everything's a bit shit even though they have a king um everything's a bit shit because they have a king um, and they're just like being invaded and taken over in a way that's kind of horrible i suppose in, and, and this is a weird thing for me to say because like i love the fantasy elements of course but it's it feels perhaps just a little bit more grounded and almost like you're watching something that could have happened to some extent and like it feels a bit more historical in a weird way than fantastical there's sometimes of that sense of like groundedness maybe just um which again seems strange for me to say because I like the fantasy parts but I, I just like how real it feels and also I suppose like the battle in Helm's Deep is so intense like it's it's really one of the best battle scenes in cinema that I think I've seen and you get so invested in it and it's very emotional and yeah I, I think if we're talking about the movie technically and, and we have been talking about it technically i want to talk about it like thematically and narratively in a moment but yeah if we're talking about it like just as a piece of technical craft 
the Battle of Helm's Deep is like a turning point in American pop culture. It really demonstrates what you can do in this sort of fancy setting. Now, obviously, you, you've had like Saving Private Ryan. Uh, you've had, you know, all, all this, all these other movies, war movies that have done similar things in scale. But this feels like the first time you've really done that in a fantasy setting. And it, it becomes kind of the norm. Every fantasy movie, franchise, television show, The Rings of Power, Game of Thrones, even Wheel of Time, they all have to have their Helm's Deep moment. It, it's kind of, it's a moment where I remember as an audience member being like, they can do this in fantasy and just having my mind blown. And of course, you know, we've talked about the number of extras, the number of swords, the number of costumes in play, the fact that it was so intensive that, you know, Viggo Mortensen chipped his tooth while filming it. Bernard Hill, I think, slashed his ear open. But yeah, I, I think that like Helm's Deep is a phenomenal technical accomplishment uh, in, in American fantasy cinema. And it, and it does. It, it feels visceral. It feels grounded it, it, to what you're saying. It feels gritty, real, tangible, dirty, filthy in a way that I don't think people associated fantasy with feeling at the time, mm -hmm. even after Fellowship. Like, it, it just feels like a very immersive film, I think, compared with the other two that are more overtly fantasy-leaning. Um, so I think that has a lot to do with it. But then in terms of the themes as well, like, there's a lot to do with family. Um, I love Eowyn's little subplots, um, even if some of them make me a little bit embarrassed for her. But I do really like her as a character. Um, and I like kind of that exploration of of her in particular as, like, a female character in this world and not wanting to be passive and helpless and, and trying to have some version of a voice. So I'd say that kind of resonated with the younger me. I do not fear death, I fear a cage. Yeah, exactly. Just to bring it back to the, because I, I, something that I, I actually quite glom onto with this, and I, I worry the point that you made about like the fantasy stuff and you loving the fantasy stuff, but you loving this movie despite the lack of the fantasy stuff. <laughs> part of me is like, am I a terrible person? Because I'm like the Lord of the Rings movie I like most is the one that is like most gritty and grounded and dirty and sweaty yep. and like full of <laughs> unpleasant people doing unpleasant <laughs> things. But like, I, I really do connect with, the two towers for the thing the reasons that you mentioned like its characters do seem more human rather than fantastical or archetypal there's a sense that this world is actually populated by people who aren't like kings and wizards and like elves um where you have like i mean it, it's a cliche device but like the the two children the refugee children who i believe are played by jackson's uh, own children where they get like a running thing where they appear for like you know they're sent on the horse and then they they arrive and they have to be fed and everybody talks around them and then they're reunited with their mother and it's a small little arc and it's the most cl cliche thing imaginable but it gives you the sense that there are like real people in this world mm -hmm. and even things like the the idea that like characters like Gollum and Faramir and arguably even kind of Wormtongue who like Wormtongue is kind of fascinating because he's like a human Gollum he's like a human who hasn't completely transformed into a Gollum which is a nice one of those like again comparisons across the plot threads that keep them moving in parallel but the idea that like people who want things that are not like abstract ideas of good and evil and the conquering of mankind where like Wormtongue wants this woman, which is this incredibly creepy base motivation, but it feels more grounded than, well, actually, Sauron wants to control the ring and all mankind. Mm -hmm. um, or they, Gollum just wants the ring because it's the only thing that he can think of. Or Faramir, where Faramir is this guy who is tempted by the power of the ring, who's kind of lured by it. Uh, and it kind of 
unlike in Fellowship, where Aragorn's like, no, I, I just, I'm never going to hold the ring. That's how I'm going to get around the temptation. I'm just such a perfect man that I'm going to decide I'm never going to hold the ring, and it's going to be perfect. Uh, Faramir's a bit more like, yeah, but what if I did hold the ring? Uh, which kind of gives it something that feels more real. Yeah. But I think Faramir has the, the added depth of, like, that obvious family conflict and yeah. sense of responsibility and honor and his fucking shit like world-class <laughs> shit of a father making him feel terrible so he already has a lot more depth than i think aragorn has in all three movies which kind of adds an extra dimension to his temptation if you will we we, we have set aside tw charlene did send a message to the group saying we have to set aside 25 minutes to talk about aragorn we i haven't i haven't even started the clock on that where we're gonna I, I meant i meant how hot he is i didn't mean anything else <laughs> Not what, not what a hero he is. <laughs> just to be clear, uh, it might have actually been just him coming through that the doors. Maybe yeah, that was twenty five minutes. Yeah, the the meme of him walking in slow motion, like the trailer shot of him walk again, like to give a sense of like the cultural impact of this movie. The like I remember the teaser trailer for this, which is set to a remix from like Requiem for a Dream. Yes, it uh, is. Clint Clouds or the Kratos Quartets. <laughs> it's yeah. like I remember that so vividly as well. Yeah, so uh, weird. <laughs> and the slow motion shot of Aragorn walking through the doors that Shirley mentioned, which is also in the trailer, because like, that's like the boom moment. That's like the special effect. It's like, forget about Helm's Deep. Forget about the fact we built the largest set in the Southern Hemisphere. Look, Vigo Mortensen is going to walk through a door sweaty <laughs> in slow motion like he owns the place. That's the money shot, baby. And like, I, I remember people being really upset with the, like the fake out death of Aragorn that happens when he goes over the cliff. because Not because obviously they'd read the book or they knew that the next film was return of the king and it was obviously him but because like no the movie hasn't given us the slow motion aragorn walks through the door shot yet so obviously he can't be dead because there's no way you'd cut that from the movie um no way but like to, to, to the thing about like the humanity of it like even i find i just i like the characters in this one better than i like the characters in the other one like theoden Right, who's theoden is is the, is a king he's a king but he's a bit of a shit king in that like he seems to oh, yeah. run a village like that's it. He, yeah, he seems like the king who's like head of the like council who decides where people could park and <laughs> yeah, stuff. That, like <laughs> that's it. Like it seems like he's, he's more of a mayor, really. He's, yeah, he's <laughs> zoning. That is the extent of yeah. his power here. Um, and like he gets like Theoden gets these like wonderful mono. He's arguably for me one of the most quotable characters in the movie, where he's like talking about this thing. You know, ever has grown on the tombs of my ancestors. Now it grows on the grave of my son. And obviously the famous and so it begins the great battle of our time. But he, he seems more grounded and kind of like rooted in something real and recognizable where he's, again, this, this Tolkien-esque thing where Tolkien says it wasn't inspired by anything, but obviously it has that resonance of a generation that lived through the First World War. And as he, Tolkien was writing this, preparing for another shadow to fall over Europe, like burying your children, a generation, an older generation burying your children. And mm -hmm. I think Charlene mentioned this is a war story. Like, this is yeah. fundamentally about war. And it's a particular about, like, the loss of children, mm. which I find really, really compelling. Obviously, Theoden loses his son. Um, obviously, you know, Boromir is, is the son of the, 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 the John Noble character who is anything but Denethor. Denethor. Um, but obviously, like, even even things like the, the refugee children, for example, but even smaller details like the, the Entwives being lost. And with them... 
any possibility of a next another generation of Ents emerging. Um, even small things like the, the jokes that they make about how nobody's seen dwarven women, which seems to imply the idea that maybe there is like, this is it for the dwarves. There are there is no next generation of Gimli's kind of coming up. But the idea that yeah, that that war kills all of us. There's a wonderful scene in the extended cut of the movie, uh, which is maybe my favorite scene in in the movie, where after like Sam and uh, Frodo have seen the elephant, and and trust me, I'm in awe as somebody who has seen Timothy Elephant in lots of places. <laughs> I I'm always delighted to see an elephant. Um, but where obviously like Faramir stages the ambush and they kill the guy and he drops off the the elephant and the body falls next and it's like you know the if you if you want to fight the enemy you should be helping us and he's like the enemy. His sense of duty was no less than yours, I deem. You wonder what his name is where he came from, and if he was really evil at heart, what lies or threats led him on this long march from home, if he would not rather have stayed there in peace. War will make corpses of us all. And like, yep. when Andrew and I talk about movies on, on the podcast, what we generally come back to is this idea of aboutness. Now, obviously, you know, movies are great, they're fantastic, they don't have to have, like, a deeper meaning or purpose, but what we tend to find is, like, when we watch a blockbuster, and for one or either of us, it, it almost gets there, but doesn't get there, like, emotionally, it's that aboutness that's the problem, it's the idea that there's no, we can't really latch on to what it's saying or what it's doing, we, it doesn't seem to be about something, and I think that's a problem I frequently have with fantasy, to be frank, it's a problem that I have with the two other movies in the Lord of the Rings trilogies in Fellowship and Return of the King, where I can't quite, like, hook into what they're about, their aboutness, what they're saying, what they say about the world in which we live, how they relate to the world in which we live um, in, in kind of concrete terms. And this, The Two Towers, really does kind of stay with me in its, its portrayal of, like, war as this cynical fruitless endeavor where it doesn't matter whether you are like objectively right yeah. because all our characters are objectively right because they're fighting Sauron it's still hell it's not glorious it's a nightmare and you're still killing people who have lives and and it's still causing immeasurable suffering as a result and that's something that feels kind of profound to me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like even stuff with um what's this with Frodo, where Frodo's walking through the marshes. I think like Tolkien has said, like, allegory, you know, blah, blah, don't care, not based on anything in particular, but he's like, Yeah, no, that that was the psalm. That was my experience yeah. uh, of that was my memory of the psalm. Was this these bodies mm -hmm. in this kind of wet, trenchy place where they're just staring up, kind of judging. But Frodo, uh, Frodo's whole thing with Gollum. Where, like, when Sam asks Frodo why Frodo cares about Gollum, like, why he, he is a vest in any way, shape, or form, it's the idea that he can come back. Like, if Frodo can get Gollum to come back, mm -hmm. that implicitly means that Frodo can come back from this thing that he's done. And that's a fundamental war narrative. Mm. And we will, we, I, I've set aside time later to talk about Aragorn and his sexy door opening. And I do have a note here, is Aragorn the original horse girl? But it is worth <laughs> noting that, like, br even Brago, Brago 
the horse that finds Aragorn in Fellowship of the Rings. It is suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. <laughs> that is how deeply ingrained this movie is as a war movie, where he takes, like, Brago to the stables. Like, oh yeah, Brago lost his entire family. Brago lost her entire family to, to war. And he's like, let her go. She's seen enough war. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, this movie is, is intense. <laughs> this movie, nobody, nobody yeah. took, like, a chill pill on this. Um, but, Charlie, do you want to talk, a little, like, about the war aspect of it? Because you kind of mentioned that originally. Like, it's, Yeah, I mean... It's it. I mean, you you've just said most of it, but like, Sorry. I mean, it it is it is interesting to me because like war movies are also things I'm not that into. So like uh, <laughs> war movies and fantasy movies, <laughs> really, like there is a lot of like weird stuff that um <laughs> that the Lord of the Rings does that I'm usually not a huge fan of. Um, but like you can see that what I really think that it's probably the reason everything works in the Lord of the Rings is that. Peter Jackson is a thoughtful man and the screenplays are thoughtful and every visual thing that went on screen there is thoughtful. Yeah. So, you know, time was spent trying to pull out threads of everything. It's not like, you know, let's get these books that are about, you know, bringing a ring to a volcano and to make a load of money out of them. Like it is yeah. mm-hmm. thoughtful. And he obviously has an interest in World War One. We've all seen the, uh, I can't remember <laughs> yeah. the name of it, the what the documentary. They shall not grow old, I they think. Shall not that's the old. one. Yeah, the colorized, that's yeah. the one. Um, yeah, like, and, and so um, we know that he has like this kind of interest in it and you can feel it because like in that way that he wants to dig deep into why anyone should care about fantasy and like, Grace, this is exactly kind of, you know, where you were coming from is that like the grounded stuff earns a lot mm-hmm. earns a lot so, like I love hanging out with the elves I loved in the fellowship of the ring like whenever you hang out with elves I'm just like my eyes are lighting up and I'm swooning and I'm just like Kate I love you um but like you, you know like everything that you need to feel yeah. is is because of the kind of um more grounded human yeah. characters and I think that the two towers does that really well and like you get to Rohan and like you know it it's yeah, it's a kingdom and the king's castle is like a cabin. Yeah. You know, like it's a, a really nice cabin. And everybody <laughs> like looks a terrible like or something. They're, they're all really dirty yeah. and they're missing teeth and you know Exactly, no yeah. Even remotely well off in any way compared to like these completely flawless, beautiful totally beautiful, yeah. like aesthetically pleasing elves with their gorgeous houses and eternal youth and all this sort of stuff. Like Rohan just looks like yeah. a shit country town. <laughs> Ireland. It looks like Ireland in like any movie ever made. My basket of turf. <laughs> but it kind of does. And then like, I suppose the elves just look like, I don't know, uh, the royals or something in the in England. <laughs> They're like beautiful, wealthy, shiny people. <laughs> and, and like, again, just to, just to give an example of like how much uh, Jackson cares about this. There's a story, like there's, that, there's an Empire cover story about the making of this that is in the show notes well worth reading. Um, but like there's a story in that of somebody presenting like an elven scroll to him to read and him like looking at the elven language and deducing that it says Gary was here and telling them to send it back to the workshop <laughs> because like that's breaking the reality of this world for him but also because in his mind fans will will read this and will be very upset even though it only appears on screen for for 2 or 3 seconds yeah um we will maybe talk about the the kind of the the fan stuff later on but Let's talk then about Aragorn. So, Charlene, to, to give you the floor, because you're, you're the one who proposed this, <laughs> you could talk that shot of Aragorn walking through the doors, or just Aragorn in general in this movie. What's your take? I, I mean, Aragorn's just like the best hero. 
Well, I don't know. I could say that about everyone, but <laughs> in terms of just your like your action hero type guy, like uh, as I've said, I'm not really into action movies. So like <laughs> uh, I, I actually remember when this film came out being really um, or before it came out, should I say, being actually kind of pissed off because um, Stuart Townsend had oh, lost yeah. the job yes, and they, they put some other lad in there. And I was like, oh, who's this guy? Fuck's sake. And I, I love Stuart Townsend because he was in About Adam and he was really charming and whatever. I know. I was like. And they swapped him out for the lead of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. <laughs> exactly. You're just like, OK. Uh, so I had no interest whatsoever and actually probably didn't have much interest in him in The Fellowship of the Ring. But um, <laughs> I think Aragorn is such a good. I mean, I know like it's. It's probably kind he's probably kind of shallow <laughs> with silliness but uh, as in the storyline is probably a bit of silliness that you don't really care because it's fantasy um but again like behind his eyes is sort of wisdom and it's sort of caring deep 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 caring and empathy for all of these little people that he meets along the way um a really deep understanding of the world and uh what it means for him to have to fit into it and you know all that stuff about him whether or not he wants to reclaim his rightful place as the king is like well do I actually want to is that what I want for myself like that's kind of cool little um little dilemma <laughs> um but I I love him because he's so he's kind and he's good and he is like the 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 kind of um trope of like the good that man can do when we are all supposed to feel like man is bad in every other <laughs> way mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> that, you know, men are, you know, easy, easy, easy to fall, like they're corrupt at their core, which, you know, this film proves time and time again. Um, but yeah, I, I, I just like that. I mean, I'm a bit of a sucker for that kind of romantic aspect of an action hero. There is, again, because I think we talked last year, Grace is maybe not a huge fan of Aragorn. I am kind of neutral <laughs> on the whole Aragorn phenomenon. I, I'm a Faramir girl. I love Faramir very much. Oh, that's fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong with loving Faramir. And like, it's also, obviously, but if I had to pick like a human, then it would be Faramir. <laughs> Well, I mean, okay. it was the cut that argued that there are basically three kinds of people. And I think they are represented on this podcast. There are, and again, this is the cut. It's not me. There are uh, Legolas girls, Aragorn girls, and Boromir women. And I'm apparently a Boromir <laughs> woman is where I fall on this uh, scale, apparently. Um, I am very much not a Boromir woman. <laughs> no, I, I am not either. I mean, I, I actually, I love Boromir as a character. I have a lot of empathy for him, especially as I've gotten older. But... um. No, too volatile, too uh, too toxic, too, it, too man too needs to man. go to therapy <laughs> meme, you know? Men will literally my... try and steal the ring and murder a child um, rather than go to therapy. <laughs> I, I mean, there, there is something inherently appealing about a man who says one does not just walk into Mordor before trying to walk directly into Mordor, um, yep. which is, I think, everything you need to know about that character. But like, So negative. He's like, you would not pretend the House of Men could you do this. This is folly. Like, that's the can-do attitude we need right now. <laughs> but, but he tries anyway. Like, he tries anyway. Like, we said like, it's spite just because Aragorn volunteers. Otherwise, he, he would to, have, like, yeah. fuck off. You're on your own. <laughs> You practically see him rolling his eyes, like, <laughs> like for fuck's Fine. sake, I guess I better do yeah. this. <laughs> dad's not, Dad's not going to shut up about this if I don't. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, like, okay, but uh, just talking about like Aragorn, I think that like Jackson said that as far as he's concerned, The Two Towers is Aragorn's movie. Fellowship belongs to Frodo, but as far as he's concerned, the heart of Two Towers lies with Aragorn. And in particular, like, I think you see that with 
Like, this is a movie that, and obviously Boromir is a reflection of Aragorn in the previous movie. He's a counterpoint, he's a reflection, etc. But I think that here in The Two Towers, you get a lot more of that, where there are characters who are positioned as kind of imperfect versions. I think, like, Charlene kind of said Aragorn is, like, the perfect ideal of, like, masculine heroism. And I like that in The Two Towers, you get, like, these weird, kind of, like, it takes... It takes a Faramir and it takes an, is it Uan, the, the, what's the name of the Carl Urban guy? Uh, Umir, Emir, Omir? Emir. Emir. It takes, Amir. you have to, you have to add them together to get like a full, <laughs> you have to do like a Transformers thing to get a full Aragorn. Where it's like, you know, Faramir <laughs> is the one who rescues the hobbits, much like Aragorn does in Fellowship. But he's not as pure. He's not as good. He he won't let them go. He won't assist them on their quest. He has to have a little journey himself to get there. Uh, as opposed to Aragorn just being like, right, you guys are with me. Let's sort this out. And then you have Omir, who's like, you know, I am part of the royal lineage of Rohan. I'm the nephew of the king. Presumably some sort of title falls to me on the death of the prince. But I just, you know, I got exiled, so I just guess I'm going to ride around in the middle of nowhere forever until Gandalf kind of comes and finds me and tells me <laughs> that I have to, like, show up as a deus ex machina at the climax of this movie. But I like the idea that, like, the Lord of the Rings, particularly the Two Towers, is, like, this universe that is populated with imperfectly formed men and then just Aragorn, uh, which <laughs> I find kind of fascinating, I think. Well, I think in the first film, he's he's a bit more mysterious and you're not quite sure what to make of him and should you trust him Strider, or whatever. And then by the yeah. end of that, yeah. And then by the end, you kind of, you know, you know, you can trust him. And then the second film is him just kind of revealing himself to us and we're still not disappointed. Well, I'm not. Um, <laughs> and then in, by the third one, it's sort of just established and then he just gets to be king. So like, yeah, I guess this is the, this this is the, the moment for Aragorn, I think. He's such a fuckboy in this movie though. Like, like this is <laughs> this is the thing that has struck me most since rewatching this is that like he's such a whiny bitch. Like I don't know what I don't know how people don't notice this more often because like you have the first movie where he's um they suggest this but they don't go into it until the two towers where he's just like sorry Arwen like um I, I'm just not like I'm just not good enough you need to stay here and it's just like allowing her no like autonomy whatsoever in this decision and just fucking off but still holding on to her necklace for some bizarre reason and then freely scamming on Eowyn who's like 67 years younger than him or something not like fully leading her on not being even remotely clear about his you know relationship status that is true and just, like just allowing her to believe that she could have a chance I'm rude about her fish too before letting her down in the horrible way possible in the third movie only when his future father-in-law has rocked up and been like yo you're one who you abandoned is about to die do you want to do something about that like that's the only reason he cares again so <laughs> that's <gonna be> true. <laughs> that really annoys me yeah it, it is worth, again, again, this is maybe a segue into talking about, like, the weird relationship that this movie has with kind of Tolkien enthusiasts. Um, but, like, originally, um, the plan for this movie was to have Erwin show up at the Battle of Helm's Deep. Like, it was originally, like, the structure of this movie was going to be, you spend so much time on this relationship, this kind of, like, love triangle, basically, this Middle-earth love triangle um, with Owen, with um, with the Aragorn, and with Erwin. And the idea is that, yeah, you have all this pining that takes place and then she shows up with the elves at the Battle of Helm's Deep and they get together and it's a happy ending. Um, and apparently, like, Liv Tyler, like, got the script, was like, yes, this is what I signed up to do. Film the scenes. 
And then, like, when she went to see the premiere of the movie, it was like, Wait a minute. You cut them out? And, <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. And, and, and Jackson was like, yeah, we, we decided that, like. Sorry, I'm just on a horse heading heading <laughs> to, like, the Grey Havens. Like, what? What's going on here? Yeah, well, Jesus. presumably when she was, she thought she was heading somewhere else when they shot that. Yes. But yeah, apparently Jackson was like, we, we thought about it and uh, we decided that it wasn't worth the hell that we would get from the fans. Uh, over it because they they got a, they generated a bit of we talked about it last year there was a weird controversy over like the idea of Arwen riding a horse in Fellowship of the Rings and getting an action scene um, what oh for god's sake oh, well it, it's <laughs> what's wrong with people you can't have the women doing these things like that's not how it would no. work <laughs> I, I was gonna say it was reassuring it's not reassuring but I was gonna say it is it is not surprising to discover that these things were present in the culture 20 years ago. Such tiny corners of the internet yeah. that like barely even existed. <laughs> that they were already and Peter Jackson, up to this shit. Yeah, Peter Jackson was like, I'm not, it's not worth my life to do this. Like, if you listen to the commentary, like, again, there's a wonderful evolution across the special features where like, everyone's making fellowship and they're really happy and it's amazing and nobody can believe that they're doing this. And then you watch the special features for the two towers and nobody can believe they're still doing this. It's a very, there's a very different mood. Um, but if you watch like the commentary, like Jackson is maybe a bit candid about how he feels about Tolkien fans by the time you get to the two towers. You can tell that this is somebody who's been through a press cycle over Fellowship of the Ring. God. And yeah, he's like, I can imagine. Yeah. Like I, I, I'll try and they're, they're like, it's, he basically makes up kind of jokes about like furthest from the book award that I was trying to win here and things like that. <laughs> Cause obviously like Faramir was usually controversial in the book. Faramir does an Aragorn. He's like, ah, cool ring you got there. If I weren't a good person, I'd try and take it off you. But good thing I'm a good person. So carry on about your business. Whereas here, obviously, he becomes a much more complicated character played by Wenham. I think it's like, and it's amazing to think that there are fans that are outraged by that. Like there's a review from uh, Kate Nephew at Tor.com, uh, which came out a couple of years after the movie came out. And like, this is from a fan perspective. And she writes, look, I understand that movies are not books and the pace requirements are different. And that what's suspenseful on the page may not be suspenseful on the screen. But was it really necessary to create suspense by making so many characters self-centered, short-sighted, and ill-informed? By, in other words, diminishing them. Whoa. Because I'd much rather a slightly flatter sequence of ups and downs instead of stomping all over our beloved characters. Jesus. And it's, it's weird. It's weird to look at these movies which were like massively successful and like wonderfully reviewed. That there was this kind of community of people who were like, but it's not like the books. Oh, but of course. Oh, but of course. <laughs> and where were these people when the Hobbit movies got made? Where were they? Oh, oh, I, I, don't think, I don't think they got any less angry, Charlene. I don't, uh, <gasps> oh my God. I think they the all end. passed away with the shock and fright. <laughs> funny though to think back to that time and just think like a time when I anyway was completely oblivious to any of this shit happening and I was just like oh but everybody loves these movies like unquestioningly loves them I think I was probably in college before I met someone who said they didn't really like them and I was shocked I was like what's wrong with you have you have you like spoken to somebody <laughs> like that's a terrible failing <laughs> so yeah to know all of this crap is going on in the background is um something that I was insulated from for a very long time that's the best way to be and even to this day sometimes you'll read criticisms yeah you'll read criticisms and just be like did we see the same movie 
not sure I know what you're on about <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, this is this is the thing where like I worry if Andrew were here, he would slap me for saying. But it's the thing where like I wonder like, do I like this movie because it diminishes Tolkien's characters? Like, do I find this movie compelling because it does the things that these fans find upsetting? Where it makes the characters a bit more flawed, a bit more short short sighted, a bit more ill tempered. Like, there's a moment here where, and it's a small moment, and like arguably if you're editing this movie you're like this just goes there is no excuse for this peter but there's a moment like before the siege of helm's deep where like legolas comes up to aragorn and he's like these people are all gonna die you're aware of that right we should probably like get out of here and just like let them die which they're gonna do anyway and aragorn's like you (laughs) asshole um and then like two (laughs) scenes later legolas walks up he's like so i thought about what you said and you're right uh we we should probably just stay here and save them all uh and i like I can, I can see fans being very upset at the idea that Legolas the Elf has a moment where he's like, you know what, maybe we just leave him to die. But I'm like, that's yeah. one of the reasons why I love this movie so, so much. And why, like, I guess, like, it's in keeping with the, you know, what the, the what's wrong with the elves is that they're just a little bit, like, chill and they like to keep to themselves and they don't like to get involved in anybody else's business. So, like, it is in keeping. It's not like it's... <laughs> Out of character. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway. <laughs> I, I do I do love the idea. It's like, yeah, we can go smoke some pot weed or something. We can get Gandalf's got some <laughs> weed around here. We can just chill out. We can take it easy. Um, I mean, it, it is it is just on, on Aragorn here before we move off, because I... I found this and found it really fast has it been 25 minutes i don't know if we've hit 25 i think we're around 22 it's I, probably has. I think we can get us there though um but there is um something about the the horse basically where like again vigo mortensen so much of this character is vigo mortensen where the relationship that he has with brago the horse apparently came from mortensen where he was like incredibly comfortable with the horse like lying down and letting the horse wander around <laughs> near him which is not what actors <laughs> he's just like a poet like sprawled in the field and the horse is like nuzzling at him and everyone's just like oh wow this is so beautiful like we must we must put this in the movie this is such a way with words peter jackson's like is it too late to get Stuart townsend back um like if this goes horribly wrong um but like apparently like he bought three of the horses after the movie was done um, and he became friends with, like, Jane Abbott, who was a stunt rider and horse trainer on production. And, like, she generated an attachment to one of the horses as well. And he bought her the horse that she had, like, generated the emotional attachment to. find that a really, really... See, what a good man. <laughs> um, and, and, like, I, I kind it's of... too pure. <laughs> so pure. Yeah, like, and as Grace said, the kind of, like, the long-haired, like, wandering poet bard thing of Mortensen, where he's doing press for this thing, talking about how... Peter Jackson has just saturated the thing with CGI and it's not what he signed up for. And like doing interviews, doing press for it, wearing a no blood for oil t-shirt, um, <laughs> which I get. And then like talking on Charlie Rose about how he's upset about. Nice. I imagine Mortensen is a fantastic interview subject, but a terrible client for any sort of PR company. Oh my God. Um, yeah. <laughs> but like going on Charlie Rose and talking about like the Bush administration and actually like engaging with the anti-war movement, which is something you didn't do in America at this moment in time, because uh, this is still 2002. This is just a year after September the 11th. And again, mm. we talked last year about it. We don't really have to bring it up. But the, the way these movies were weirdly kind of claimed by like you had these movies and the Harry Potter movies coming out at the same time. And the right in America was like, okay, we can only have one fantasy movie series. So Harry Potter is evil. It's about devil worshipping and witchcraft. Children should not have that. 
But the two tower, the Lord of the Rings, that we feel like that's kind of our vibe. Um, and so it kind of it's <laughs> war, yeah. <laughs> but, but righteous war is the thing. And again, like a lot will be included in the show notes. But the idea that like America in two thousand one was like, you know what we need? We need a story of good versus evil, of like a war that kind of has to be fought. And like I, I really love this about the movie. I, I don't. Jack, obviously, the movies were made before nine eleven. Jackson wasn't doing it consciously. Uh, it is perhaps thorny in hindsight, but it's something I admire. Like the idea that this is a movie about the necessity of war in some places mm. where like you have both with the Ents and obviously with Theoden, you have these characters who are like, look, it's bad out there, but uh, we could just keep our heads down and not do anything and it'll all work itself out. Yeah. So it's like the Ents are like, we'll just hold a meeting that will go on for months uh, and that'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or like Theoden's like, well, what if we just don't do anything? It's like, okay, well, that's not working. What if we go to a big walled castle and then don't do anything there? And it's like, maybe. maybe. <laughs> um, but I like that the, the, the movie's an argument. And again, it's, it's very earnest, but it's the idea of kind of be the change you want to be at the risk of being very patronizing. Yep. But the idea that you have an obligation, you are part of the world. Yeah. So when things happen you have an obligation to respond to them to act on them and to engage with them that i find like very earnest it's the part of tolkien's writing that i i really respond to yeah. it's like yeah there is this shadow and again tolkien would say you're talking nonsense this isn't what it's about uh this book was written before the second world war um all that sort of stuff but it's like there's a shadow falling across europe in the 1930s yeah. There is a specter rising uh, that we thought mm -hmm. was defeated and vanquished. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a story about the perils of assuming that you can deal with that through pacifism. Jackson is not subtle here. Like when when Saruman goes out to address the army of the Urukai, and he's just like, "Yeah, I'm doing triumph of the will." That's just so you, yeah, yeah, <laughs> just so yeah, you get 100%. what what, what mm -hmm. this movie is. Yeah. Um, but do we want to talk a little bit about Gollum then? Um, like because Gollum seems to be like the big thing in this movie as a technical innovation. So Grace, do you have a take on Gollum? Yeah, it's um Gollum's kind of a fascinating one to me because I remember when I was younger, like the first few times I would have seen this, I found the whole Gollum thing just really irritating. Like I uh, the shtick or the, the the graphics is it is it the character or the actual physical just character? just the character? I think I was like he's just so gross and disgusting and annoying, and I'm just not interested in him. And then um, obviously as I get older, kind of the some of the depth and the complexity in the character makes a lot like it resonates a lot more closely just in the sense that you can be so warped, I suppose, by circumstance and, and bad circumstances in particular. Like there's a lot of pathos there in the sense of, you know, I, I guess you could draw many allegories, say an allegory of being addicted to something, for example, and how it just consumes you and, you know, kind of destroys all the relationships in your life and so on. And then the, the, the hope to come back from that and to you know, have a meaningful relationship with the world again, I think is quite moving. Um, and that's just one way of looking at it. So I do love the the sequence in this where he's like talking to himself kind of back and forth and how well that's done. Like that was very, I don't think when I was younger, I, I don't, I didn't appreciate how well that was done and how kind of deftly they've cut it together and how, um, how clearly they conveyed that it's him talking to himself and it's not two people um like that little scene it's like it doesn't even go on for that long but it's just it's so powerful and so insightful and really kind of stays with you as one of the standout moments in the film it's that moment where the camera kind of crosses the 180 degree line so so like the, it shows you the camera moving to the two angles that it's going to cut between to give you the effect of a conversation between two. it's a remarkable piece of filmmaking 
Um, we should mention, by the way, because uh, we talked a lot about Jackson as like the auteur on this. I think last year we mentioned as well, but it's worth singling out. It's also Fran Walsh, who is his partner, and Philippa Bowens, who worked on the screenplay. They're also huge influences as well. Mm-hmm. And apparently, like, you talk to many of the actors, uh, Darren says, having not talked to any of the actors, but having read interviews by people <laughs> who have. But people talk to the actors, uh, and they'll frequently say, like... A lot of the directing of the actors came from Fran Walsh. So like Brad Dora, for example, playing Grima Wormtongues. Like, yeah, it was, Peter was was great, really good to work with, but it was Fran who kind of sat me down and said, this is what the scene is. This is what the character is. Um, and it was like Fran that I was trying to impress when I was doing those performances because she was the one who was kind of holding me to that standard. Yeah. And in particular, uh, I think that Andy Circus has said that, yeah, a lot of the key, and I think to, to Jackson's credit as well, Jackson has said it, like, that sequence that Grace mentioned is his favorite sequence from the three movies. Uh, and he said, look, I did very little of that. That was mostly Fran. Uh, it was mostly Fran Walsh directing that sequence. She's the one who came up with the camera move. She's the one who came up with the idea of having two angles and cutting between them. And she's the one who got the performance out of Circus. So I think that's kind of worth worth singling out there. Uh, but Charlene, what about yourself in terms of of Gollum? Yeah, like um, well, I loved Gollum when this film came out. Um, I, I didn't. Like I have no history with any of this. So like it was all brand new to me. Um, and obviously like that sequence is stunning. Like it's just yeah, it's pure cinema and just like Andy Serkis's performance. Like I was, I was just talking just before I came on here uh, with my husband, Brent, and we were just talking about, you know, has anybody ever beaten Gollum? Like a, a, a CGI performance that was good enough that it was better than Gollum and like the only other yeah. one that I thought stood up was Caesar yeah. in The Planet of the Apes. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, actually, like, it's just Andy Serkis is king. And it does come down to performance because it isn't just about technology, yeah. right? Because, like, definitely there's been better rendered... I mean, I don't know anything about special effects CGI. I'm sure there's been better ones. But it does come down to looking into his eyes and what they're doing. And, like, it, it's it's amazing to me that after 20 odd years, you're watching this performance that's like a 20 a, a year old CGI character yeah. so early in CGI characters existing yeah. that is still able to properly affect me because he always did. And like, you know, you've, you've got your weird little um, quirky sense of humour that comes out yeah. in him, not just mm. the, you know, the, the depth of character, but also just humour that he gets out there and like, the smish, the fish smashing song, for example. Yeah, <laughs> adorable. <laughs> that lovable stuff. But like, you get to see him in like through different people's eyes as well. So like, it's really interesting when you look how Andy Circus performs him when he's being watched by Sam yeah. versus when he's being watched by Frodo, and that's a different, like a slight yeah. different take. And I just think I think he's he's a phenomenal character and so so intricate and so sad and like uh, Grace to your point about the kind of addiction read like how it all ends for him yeah. is so so sad and like yep you just, you feel it in every part of your bones so it's like a little comedy character a little villain but also like this hugely tragic figure I just think it's it's an amazing character and brilliantly brilliantly performed yeah, he's, mm-hmm. he's kind of the heart of the movie and perhaps the trilogy for me where like it all again Tolkien and again this is the thing where I feel like this is why these movies are not for Darren and Darren should not have strong opinions about them but it's like Tolkien's very rigorous there is black and there is white there is good and there is evil and never the twain shall meet there's a clear delineation mm-hmm. with Gollum there is that weird thing where there's almost the possibility of redemption. He's the only character when you're watching the movies, it's like, 
that guy could switch sides. That guy could, he could, whatever mm. way he breaks, mm. this could, this could change the course of the thing. Yeah. And he could break either way at either moment. It's a total wild that, card. That's, that's yeah. it. And like, even here, there's that thing where he, he vanquishes his inner demon. Like, he's like, no, he does, like, Frodo does love me and I am yeah. Smeagol. I'm not Gollum. Go away. I don't need you. And because mm. he just happens. And then, then it's so sad then, when he falls off the wagon again, so to speak. This is the one time I'm angry at Faramir in the entire trilogy. I'm like, why did you do this? It's so sad. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that's it exactly. And it's it's just co- it's just luck. If he hadn't have met Faramir, would things have gone differently? If that if the yeah. Faramir's men hadn't beaten him in the cave, would things have gone differently? Um, and like that, that's really mm-hmm. compelling. I, I find that really interesting. Would Frodo still have all his fingers? That's a good point. <laughs> um, and like, we, we should mention again, very boring technical stuff, but apparently what makes Gollum, di- and I, again, this is probably really nerdy stuff that only I find interesting, um, but what makes Gollum different from previous computer generated characters and why he was so expensive and why he took so long and why they had to double their manpower and computer processing power to do it is because he's actually designed from the inside out. He's the first time that a CGI character isn't animated like from the outside in like Jar Jar Binks was, where you just draw an outline. It's like a comic book character and he moves. Um, this was designed with musculature, uh, with veins and with with bones. Um, and th- they said like that was the big thing, like the big difference if you look between Fellowship, where he appears very briefly at the bottom of the frame, mm. and like the Two Towers, where he's a real character, is that like in the Two Towers, you can see his musculature, you can see his bones, you can see the veins yeah. underneath yeah. his skin. And even though like he might have a bit of a rubbery texture, like you're not watching this going, man, they really starved that actor to get that performance. Yeah. You are aware <laughs> yeah. that he's animated, but he looks yeah. real or he seems more grounded. His movement yeah. is so real. Mm-hmm. And like that's why he feels tactile is that like it it just feels like you're watching yeah. a person's body and it moves in a way it's not like that fluid motion that you get a lot of the time even now yeah um it's just so and maybe it, they just had to do that because he is so skinny like mm-hmm. you know like you just can't have any flubber or hair or whatever you know <laughs> to play with and like cover up the stuff um, I like that it's or a nice on the physics. Suit. yeah we save on the jiggle physics or whatever it is that's involved by just <laughs> taking away any any give him a cape <laughs> <laughs> easy Edna um, but uh, like and like the thing about Gollum again like it's they found and again it's it's performance stuff as well like and again there's a debate to be had about whether or not like if you whether or not Circus deserves all the credit how much of it goes to animators if he were to be nominated for an Oscar should it be him and the animators together all that sort of stuff Mm. I I think it's all combined I think you can't separate one from the other Mm. Uh, there's a very famous thing where Gollum won the MTV again this is how big the cultural marker was do you guys remember Gollum winning the MTV movie award yes yeah (laughs) Like and, and again, like part of part of me is like, how many Weta staff like didn't go home to their families that Christmas because they were animating <laughs> Gollum receiving the MTV Movie Award? Um, I, I think it's a it's a great video with a good show notes. But now, with knowing how the VFX industry works, I'm like, yeah, no, maybe not. Yeah. Um, but like, it, it's the thing where they discovered that, and again, Circus's performance. They initially thought about just animating him into scenes and treating him again like a tennis ball. That that standard thing of having a tennis ball, editing it out and then animating in over it. Mm. But what they discovered was they they initially asked Circus to play the scene physically with the cast, get a sense of like where the character would end up. So when you're doing the scene again, he's going to end up over here and that's where you're going to be looking. And what they discovered looking at the takes was that the cast performed across the board better uh, against Circus than they did mm. with the tennis ball. 
um, that Circus gave something and got something from them. So he's animated over um, the over the, the actual the, over Circus's performance, which is striking as well. And again, it's a, it's a small thing, uh, and it speaks to like Jackson as a director. The camera treats Gollum like he's really there, which is is fascinating to watch. Like there are shots where he's shooting handheld footage of a CGI creature, but he's following it, mm. um, which is not how special effects shots really looked before. And it's not how special effects shots look now, but it makes it look really grounded and tactile and kind of real. And again, like small thing just about Jackson's direction. I noticed this time watching it, how much of it is retro, how much of it feels very classical. Yeah. Like there's a scene where, where Wormtongue is, Carl Urban is, is like beating up Brad Dorif and he's like, who's, what are you doing this for? And Dorif just casts his eyes across and Miranda Otto is walking across the floor. Oh yeah. And like, like from a what 1940s. screamer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly like, like from a film noir. She stops, yeah. she turns and I, I don't know if the camera pushes in on her, but I think it does. It does. L- it's a little like bit, I think. Yeah. Mm. Then it pans back when she just keeps walking. Yeah, again, like it, it's a very old style tactile sort of filmmaking, which is very kind of like horror derived, which I, I find kind of amazing. Just while we're talking about Gollum, last last year we talked about Sam and how Sam is the real hero of the franchise. Is Sam a little bit mean to Gollum? Yeah, but like, you know, he's just getting his back up for his friend. <laughs> and, I, I mean, I yeah, Gollum's a bit that. shitty to him now, in fairness. <laughs> Fairness, like Gollum's no, like, I would not want to be going on this journey with Gollum. If I was on that journey and I was Sam, I would be a complete dick to Gollum all the time. Just saying. And like Frodo sees something of himself in him and all of that stuff. Maybe if he didn't, he would also be a dick to Gollum. Sam's just like your, you know, kind of loving but judgmental mother who looks yeah. at that, that friend yeah. of yours. She's like, you're, he's a bad influence. I don't like him. And his manners are poor and his hygiene is even worse. And I just, I, I don't approve of this. But yeah, Gollum's also a little shit to him. So, you know, yeah. I, I can't, I can't blame Sam in this instance. Sam is just trying to take care of Frodo and, and Gollum is not yeah. Gollum is not helping him in this goal. No, Sam is like a one, he's got one set mind. It is just, <laughs> I am loyal to Frodo and I'm going to help Frodo put this ring in the goddamn <laughs> volcano and everything so else. So I can go back to my gardening. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um. And that's that. So <laughs> I, I, I just noted Sam seemed a little judgmental. That's all I'm saying here. It's like... <laughs> Haven't you ever wanted to eat some raw rabbits? I mean, um, what are tigers? Oh my God. Does anyone else get really sad about the fact that they have to abandon their little stew when Faramir's crew comes across them? And I'm just like, what a waste. That looked delicious. Food waste, in fact. (laughs) Terrible. Did they have any other food after that point? Was that the last of their like decent food that wasn't fucking Lembas bread or whatever? He he used the last of the salt. And and talking about how much he misses chips and potatoes. And I'm just like, oh. so relatable. We've all been there. Just craving oh. chips. <laughs> On the other hand, I mean, maybe there is something to be said for Gollum, like taking pleasure in just the simple act of consuming. It's like he catches a fish. He sings a song. He cracks the fish against a rock and he tucks in. It's a it's a very simple back to basic stuff. You know, I mean, I'm... I can see any of the hobbits doing that, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they might have the decency to fry the fish first, though. Maybe. They would, they would, yeah. yeah. Probably several <laughs> times, to be clear, in several sorts of mm. butter. Um, like seasoning and herbs and such. Um, in, in terms of other stuff, I guess the big thing to talk about that we haven't talked about already is the the Ents and the, the, 
the Meron plot and all this sort of stuff. Mm. Um, again, Tolkien's kind of like environmental themes. And I think Grace, last year you singled this out as something that you see very important to the trilogy. Yeah. Um, what do you think of the ends? What do you make of the ends? I think it's because, well, going back to um, what we mentioned earlier about the influence of the First World War and the looming shadow of the Second World War in this, um, I think one of the ways that it seems to me really undeniable is in the presence of the Ents, because if you think about the First World War as being that first kind of great conflict, great modern conflict, if you will, that had a lot of machinery, a lot of industrialization, it was very gritty and dirty and, you know, land was destroyed and, and lives were destroyed in ways that just had never happened before, like it's all mechanized brutality. And then the impact of that in the natural world and I suppose the unnatural ease which allows people to kill each other and destroy things and usurp everything the ends are like kind of the embodiment of the 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 impact of that I suppose because when you get that scene where they come out of the forest at the end um Mary and Pippin with Treebeard and all of the trees have been cut down literally to serve the fires of industry I think is something yeah. Saruman says at one point mm. um that kind of underlines the point quite spectacularly that like this is a war that will just consume resources and destroy the natural world and then the ends push back about that in this really kind of moving evocative moment that i think just really underlines the way tolkien viewed the natural world and the way it was being eroded by by the modern world and the conflicts within it yeah i mean there is that kind of like again that beautiful again jackson's old style kind of like filmmaking but the montage of like Sauron just kind of be like, yeah, you know, so I don't really have to pretend that I'm like Sauron the White anymore. I can just go full evil and it's like, so what are we going to do? Well, we're going to tear down a bunch of forests to stoke the fires of yeah. industry. <laughs> a new order will rise. How can I get people to hate me that fast? Yeah, we'll drive the machine <laughs> of war with sword and spear and the iron fists of the orc. Um, and it's just very much like the the kind of the... You know, I'm not even pretend like there's the moment. And again, the camera is constantly moving, which I love. And the cameras mm. like Jackson's constantly cramming as much into the shot as possible. That montage is just breathtaking because it's like Saruman has like assembled 25 orcs to stand around him holding spears. So that Jackson can shoot it in intense close up while he outlines his plan. <laughs> and you have the moment where like one of the guys from the uh, like, again, one of the foreign arrivals kind of people who are like, OK, well, we pledge our sword to Sauron and Saruman. That sequence where he cuts his hand and the camera just like zooms in and goes over and looks at the blood and then cuts to his face like again it's just so dynamic and so visceral and yet yeah, the idea that here mm. you quite literally have the ends representing nature yeah and the idea of Saruman representing industrialization mechanization and war and the idea that and again we talked a little bit last year about the idea, the, the, the fantasy trope thing where like races are inherently evil and maybe why that's a bit uncomfortable and maybe why the genre kind of, you know, why there are some subtexts of fantasy that aren't always one to unpack. Mm -hmm. But the idea that works really well that the orcs are, you know, not necessarily a, another race, but that they're like man who has been besmirched by mechanization. Yeah. yeah. Where the fact that their skin is dark isn't, you know, a racist commentary or, in, or anything like that. Although, yes, Tolkien did. Well, they're all, uh, you know, British cockneys. That's so. it. That, 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 <laughs> that's around that it as well. I mean, like, again, Tolkien. They're like, like lagger loud football fans. That's what they are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 
they're just waving their fists in the air. Um, but just that chanting things that we cannot broadcast on television. Um, but the idea that, yeah, like that, that obviously Tolkien and Tolkien's writing makes it clear that he does also have that aspect of them. We'll include that in the show notes. We're not going to go into it. But the idea that like their darkened skin is like oil and smoke mm. and grease and like just mechanization that like, again, it's like having your hands dirty from fixing a machine. Like, it looks like they're covered in soot. Yeah. Like, yeah. Again, I think we, we singled out last year, like, the orcs are generally awesome. Um, Like, the, the orcai, the performers are, like, striking. As you said, they're all cockney. They're all British. Um, The makeup design on each of them feels weirdly individual in a way that is, like... Yeah. Like, the, like the, the orc that, like, stalks Pippin and Merrin into the forest... Where he's like, I mean, you can just oh, take yeah. the legs. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, or let's give you a, let's put a maggot hole in your belly. He feels like he, d- I don't know his name, but he will always be Im- imprinted on my brain because he looks. As a character. That character, because <laughs> yeah. he looks so weird and he's like so perfectly. Yeah. The same thing with like the leader of the Uruk guy, the guy who just is one defining line is meats back on the menu, boys. And it's like <laughs> this. That will always be the first thing that pops into my head when I think of Lord of the Rings. I like, again, just so, so, so well designed. But Charlie, do you have anything about the Ents or Sauron or the Orcs? Well, I feel it's important to say about the Ents um, (laughs) that this is Merry's hero moment because he's just like a genius and just decides, I know how to fix all of this. (laughs) I'm just going to show the fucking Ents what's going on. And I, I love that because, you know, I love Merry and Pippin. Like, I just, they're adorable. Um, and they're like, you know, they're just silly all the time. And you're just kind of going through all of the two towers. Like when I first watched them, I'm just kind of like, okay, well, I love these lads. I like spending time with them. It was all a bit stupid. And like, there's a fucking talking tree or whatever. <laughs> Do I care? And because I had no idea where any of it was going, of course. Um, but like, oh, really? You weren't entertained? <laughs> I was entertained, but um, also suspicious of like whether this was in any way important or useful. <laughs> But by God, does this pay off? Peter Jackson, this is a three-hour movie. You can cut things. Yeah. We're having a meeting about having a meeting, okay? Hack that kind of tree thing out of the movie. Just take a fucking axe to it. I, lo- I love, by the way, when they're in the forest and they're like, Gimli, lower the axe. That's a bit rude. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Like that, I, the sequence. I love that, like he's giving a middle finger to the trees or something. Yeah. <laughs> It's all these nice little touches. I love them. Um, but the sequence where the ends attack uh, Sauron's yeah. so tower Fine. is fucking so cool. <laughs> and like, Mary did that. Mary, the Egypt, like he did my, that. My, my favorite um, letterboxed review of this is like, it, I need to dig it out and find it now for you because it's hilarious. It's literally like when the Ents just zooped into Isengard <laughs> and Saruman's entire scheme was spoiled by some fucking angry trees. I love that. <laughs> I'm going to so find true. that right it's now. It's so I delightful. <laughs> and again, like the animation there, like, and again, it's not, it's not like when we talk about the animation in this movie, I feel like it's important to stress it is, it is technically impressive. It, it's wonderfully like in terms of like craft, but like it, it's more the care and the skill with which it's animated where like there's a yeah. sequence where one of the trees is lit on fire and like as, oh, they, yeah. as they release the dam, it, yeah, it literally, Charlene did the action. It dips its head into the water to like dry it. That always fun. gets a good roar from yeah. the crowd at one of our marathons. It's just <laughs> such a fantastic detail. It is, it is amazing. Um, yeah. While we're talking about like... Oh, Isengard, I found it. I like, Can I read this letterbox review? Yeah, go for, go for it. Go for it. 
Yes, so please. it's like when the fucking ends take an entire day to have one short conversation with each other, but the second tree bear sees what nonsense Araman has done, he just shouts and the ends zoop into Isengard so fast and they just start busting skulls. And the fact that Saruman thought he was hot shit and then his entire scheme was destroyed by some super old pissed off trees. Iconic. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh, so good. Yeah. While, while we're talking about Asgard, like this is again, this is one of those things where it's like if you want to understand why Peter Jackson is like as frustrated with like making the, why the Two Towers was perhaps the hardest film for him to make in the set, and why he found it such a frustrating experience. Do you guys know the the book, The Two Towers, which is obviously uh, Tolkien wrote the book. It was meant to be one book, and then like they were like, "There's just been a war. Uh, people aren't going." Sorry, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> they they aren't going to buy like a gigantic book. You what if we split it into three parts? He's like, well, actually, I've split it into six parts. Like, no, no, that, that's too many. Three parts, three parts. And so it's like, okay, so we'll release them in sets of two. And he comes up with the titles, and obviously, Fellowship of the Ring makes sense because it's a novel with a Fellowship of the Ring in it, and the dissolving of the Fellowship is the marking of the end of that chapter. And Return the King has a king in it, and he's returning, so that that also makes sense. Uh, but apparently, he. He just liked the title, The Two Towers. He thought The Two Towers was just a cool title for a novel to have. Uh, and when they were like, so, so, J.R., which, uh, which two towers are you, uh, are you thinking about? So when you say The Two Towers, which two are you referring to? And apparently he initially wrote back to his publisher and said, the title should be left ambiguous. <laughs> because apparently he had not decided which two towers they would be. The Towers of Our Hearts. The, yeah. <laughs> the, the friends we made along the way. Like, it's like... One tower is our heart, the other tower is our head, and the conflict yeah. is, like, the distance between them. Yeah, like, exactly. But you want to know what he settled on, which is it's just stunning to me, because obviously, like, the film comes up with its own answer. And I love, by the way, that the film... The film is so proud of itself for coming up with the answer, because, it, it like, it has them refer to yeah. the two towers of Isengard and Mordor. Mm -hmm. And, like, at one point, you know, Far Faramir says, he's going to take you to the Dark Tower. And it's like, yep, yeah, we know what the two towers are. Uh, and, like, I think Kate Blanchett in the trailer is, like, the two towers of Isengard and Mordor. Just so you're clear, <laughs> Peter Jackson knows what these two towers are. Yeah. The two towers that, like, Tolkien eventually settled on were Isengard, which which makes sense, um, and Minos Morgul, which is the home of the Witch King, which does not appear mm -hmm. in either the novel The Two Towers or the film The Two Towers. That's mental. Yes. It appears in Return of the King, but not it, sooner. There's like a yeah. brief glimpse of it in Fellowship. That's yeah. interesting. That's hilarious. So yeah, so like Jackson was like, <laughs> that is a problem I have to solve. When I am making this movie. Yeah. I have to figure out what the two towers are. <laughs> By the way, also a fun movie, as he's noted, a fun movie to release uh, like 13 months after 9-11. Uh, I was going to say, I can't believe they didn't make him change the title of The Two Towers. <laughs> this is uh, apparently there was a petition. There were several online... Again, this is this is very much like we're going to ground zero of the internet. Yeah. It's like everything that is wrong with modern internet culture started... It was all there, <laughs> all along. Uh, but like, there, it, it, and again, it garnered press coverage, we'll include in the show notes. But like, uh, people were like, yeah, you should change the name of the movie to something more appropriate. Yeah, I'm, I, that doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> And look, we, we discussed it last year, so we don't have to dwell kind of too heavily on it. But the idea that, you know, these movies were very, very well received in 
America directly after the 9-11 attacks during the war on terror. Yeah. And if you're being cynical about it, you can maybe make an argument that, like, America culturally latched onto the idea of a war against an opponent that is is monstrous and undeniably evil in which our heroes are undeniably and uncontroversially virtuous mm-hmm. and the under, like the appeal of that at that particular moment in time to the american consciousness you know particularly coming out of the 90s where postmodernism irony and all that sort of stuff had been much more prevalent uh, you know the the death of irony being declared after 911 for example all that sort of stuff but i think that if you're being less cynical or or kind of more charitable, and again, this ties back into, I think, what we mentioned about, like, the weirdness of these movies being embraced by the Christian right in the States, whereas Harry Potter is, you know, demon worshipping and witchcraft. <laughs> but the idea that the inherent nostalgia of these movies, like, they're about a world that is lost and is never coming back, a glory that can never be reclaimed or recaptured. Uh, arguably an innocence that is is forever gone which is you know you could argue very much how america as a whole felt after the events of kind of 9-11 and you know maybe the story kind of resonated with that there's a really really good piece uh from reverend tom emmanuel writing in polygon uh, about that about like the, the kind of conflict that he sees between rival versions of nostalgia in the lord of the rings where you know the, the christian right maybe see this nostalgic invocation of an America that never was, that is very white and very Christian, uh, very morally ordered. Um, yeah. And yeah. Reverend Tom Emanuel argues that, you know, for him and for a lot of other Christians, what they see is the mourning of a world that was just, just innocent, that, that, you know, didn't know war, didn't know the horror and the violence of it, that had lived, you know, in peace for decades following the Second World War or, you know, even during like Kosovo and stuff, the 90s war was at a remove. So I just, I, I, I find that aspect of, of kind of the Lord of the Rings and the Two Towers uh, fascinating to, to kind of think about. Yeah. Mm. Um. All right. Is there anything else we're talking about? Anything we haven't discussed already jumping out at either? So Grace, is there anything about the Two Towers that you think we should talk about that we haven't already? Um. Can we just talk about how Faramir is a beautiful, sensitive poet who is like ill-equipped for the horrors <laughs> of the world with which he's faced and if he lived in the modern world, he'd just be like this lovely, gentle, kind man who might like teach English or something. <laughs> yeah. Far- Far- I just Far- love Far- him you're so just much. sitting fishing. Like, just, just fishing. I think, Grace, you get a full 25 minutes for that, for yeah. Return of the yes. King podcast. Because yes. like, that's, that's when that man. That's prime Farrow. We just oh my get God. a little yeah. bit of him here. <laughs> just get a tiny <laughs> sliver of of his personality. Again, I think Wenham is very good in the role. I think like, and again, it's it's the thing where it's like, I don't get how fans are not happy with this. I can't imagine a version of Faramir that is better than this, that is more interesting. Oh, he's more great. Yeah. He's great. I think we could um, dig into the psychology of that until the end of time. And, you know, that, not being able to detach yourself from your very slavish mental image and what it mean for you and so on. But this is not the time yeah. or the place for that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> while we're talking about, like, the environmental themes of the movie, it is worth noting that, like... um. And I, I love this quote from Dorf, where Brad Dorf doing an interview with, I believe it was Den of Geek a couple of years later or whatever, not specifically about Lord of the Rings. He was talking about how, like, sometimes you you work on a movie and you, you're you looking at the sets around you, you're looking at the, the movie and you, you have an idea of what it is and you go to the screening and it's exactly uh, what you expect it to be. And it's, it's arguably even better. And they asked Dorf, 
Has there ever been an experience where you have had the opposite, where you've been working on something and you're like, this is amazing and mind blowing. And then you go see it in the cinema. You're like, it's not really what I expected it to be. And interestingly, like Dora said, like this was it for him. The Two Towers was kind of one of those experiences and not in a bad way. I, like I just, it's kind of worth noting that like he he's like, I remember filming that. And like you step outside of the set and you look around and it's it's just 360 degrees of beauty. New Zealand just looks incredible. And yeah. I think like when you look at the movie, New Zealand looks incredible as well. But I love that Dorif's like, yeah, but when when you put it on screen, it is somehow nowhere near as beautiful as it looked in person. What you guys think. Wow. Yeah, what you guys think <laughs> looks amazing and wonderful and beautiful. Actually, that looks like crap compared to what we were all kind of watching and seeing, which I find wow. kind of amazing. Yeah. Um, and obviously, like, this is the point where New Zealand are starting to get a little bit tense uh, with regards to Hollywood productions, because Fellowship is... Again, we talked about this. The budget of each of these movies is about $100 million each, which is nothing for what they end up, like, looking like. And a large part of that is because New Zealand is like, come over here. We'll let you basically make the movie for free. We'll let you conscript, like, the army. Uh, and we'll let you, like, we'll, we'll get volunteers who come and work for free. You can build whatever you want, uh, just as long as you promise to restore any Think national heritage after. monuments mm -hmm. when you're done. Yep. Um, so, like, that's how they were able to make it so cheap. But, like, this is the point where after Fellowship has come out, New Zealand are kind of like, but wait, 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 wait a minute. You guys are making hundreds of <laughs> We could be making some money off this. Uh -huh. I, I think the return on New Zealand's investment or lack thereof has probably been fairly sizable over the years. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think that around about the time that this came out, they were saying that it's worth $400 million to the New Zealand tourist industry every year. And that was only in 2002, a year after. Yep. I'm less than surprised. Uh, which is stunning. Mm. Like, they were talking about ending the tax break. Like, it was so successful that it's like, we we did it once. And that was enough. Like, we, we gave one movie a tax break and we won the lotto. Um, we we <laughs> yeah. don't need to do that anymore. It will fund the nation for the next century. <laughs> yeah. That was one of the issues with, like, the, the Rings of Power. Was, like, obviously the COVID stuff was an issue as well. The fact that nobody could get over. And if you went to shoot it, you would have to spend, you know, a year in quarantine basically over there as well. But one of the issues was that for Amazon, the tax cuts didn't exist. That made the, the film viable. So they were spending... Like, the first season of Rings of Power costs twice as much as the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, to put it all in perspective. Yeah. Is uh, that the same even if you adjust for inflation and all that jazz? It's probably close to, like, 1.5 if you adjust for inflation. Still a lot. It's still a lot. Mm. And, again, again, it's shorter. It's much shorter in terms of minutes of screen time. And, well, I, I, won't, I won't say too much about the Rings of Power. Um, <laughs> but... Um, I haven't finished it yet, oh, okay. so... All right, all right. I haven't watched it yet, so... <laughs> I watched the first the first two episodes, but I probably won't at this. Stage. I'm going to watch it over Christmas. That's what that's what I decided because obviously Lord of the Rings yeah, is for Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I will say that like while I was watching it, I was like, "This is very impressive. It looks amazing. It's it's very well designed." And then I watched the Two Towers, and I'm like, "This this just looks this mm. looks like yeah. better." And I I know I know that's not fair to say. Can't compare them. Yeah, I, I know that's because again, like it's like Peter Jackson. It's like the difference is that. You didn't just have the money, you hired a filmmaker. Uh, with with all respect yeah. to J.A. Viona, who I think does a very good job with the first two episodes of the show. Mm -hmm. But like, mm. you hired Jackson. And, and I love that Jackson's like, I, I would have done a couple of episodes of uh, of The Rings of Power, but the Tolkien estate were like, nope, no, no. Oh, oh, oh yeah, <laughs> apparently... We talked about this last year, but the Tolkien estate. No, <laughs> we're done with you. Yeah, pretty much. It's like, what have you done for us lately? Um, it was very much like we, we were not happy with the changes you made to the text. We we think that you 
Yeah. Particularly in the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Like not because like I would never forgive him for the Hobbit. Like ever. Yeah. If I was a Tolkien estate, I would be like, get out. I don't care yeah. what you did before that. I agree with you. <laughs> um, oh Guillermo del Toro, call us. But uh Yeah. <laughs> I, like to, to give a sense of like how big this had been for New Zealand, just this is uh, the LA Times reporting from the New Zealand premiere of the Two Towers. So this is obviously after Fellowship has gone huge. And after New Zealand is starting to see the benefits of this, youngsters, Mm -hmm. some dressed in rented Hobbit costumes, began to gather at 6am. And by mid-afternoon, every vantage point and rooftop had been snapped up. Some workplaces in the capital had given employees time off to attend the premiere. Many carried homemade placards declaring their adoration. The Oscar's yours, PJ. Take another bow, Mr. Jackson. And we love Hobbits. In the afternoon... A street parade of clowns, movie characters and marching bands and rock performers entertained the throngs. Atop the cinema, a huge mystery creature had been erected and wrapped, unveiled by city mayor Kerry Pendergrass just before the VIPs arrived. As anticipated, it turned out to be a huge effigy of the head of the Two Towers computer-generated character, Gollum. (laughs) The drum roll started as celebrities began to arrive. Hometown directors Bond Helmer, Lee Tamahori and Vincent Ward, actor Sam Neill, local sports stars and the cast. The crowd saved the biggest applause burst for the actors who played the Hobbit characters, especially Elijah Wood, and for Jackson, dressed in an open-neck purple shirt and unzipped black jacket. That's kind of (laughs) Do you remember Peter Jackson at the Oscars when they were just like, so, like, who dressed you tonight? And he's like, me. Um, Where did you get your shoes? I just had them in the wardrobe. Um, This is a full suit. I did my hair. Like, he's just... So blase. <laughs> it's amazing. Totally. Um, and Charlene, is there anything we haven't talked about with the two towers that you think merits kind of discussion? Anything jumping out at you? Um, no. I don't know if we talked about Grima Wormtongue enough, but uh, I don't know if I have <laughs> I, anything particular to say about him except how much I love him. I, I do feel yeah. like when you're auditioning the role of the king's advisor, like I just want to see what that shortlist was where we, it's got like, we, we've got <laughs> yeah. Virtuous Sweet Mouth. We've got like, Honorable, uh, honorable lip face and uh, Grima Wormtongue. Um, and uh, could you describe yeah. him to me? Uh, well, he looks like he's constantly wet uh, is probably how I would describe him. He's got a bit of a hunch. Uh, he speaks in lisps and whispers. Uh, pale, pale, pale would be an adjective. Yeah. And it always looks like he's melting or something. Always looks like he's That's melting. Exactly. He does look like a wax candle. That is Do you ever hear about those like, um, like the, the, what you call it, the folklore type stuff about the men in black and how they look like people wearing like, like, like they're liquid and people yeah. are wearing suits oh, yeah. over them yeah. and they're made out of liquid. <laughs> like that's what Wormtongue looks like. Like underneath he's just goo. That's exactly what he looks like. <laughs> but, and again, Dorif is, is really, really, really great in the role and I think it works really well. Again, because mm-hmm. it has that, it feels like a horror kind of touch. I love, I also love that, and again, small, t- this is a reference back to like Charlene's Aragorn is the best of us moment. I love that like after Wormtongue has been tossed out, Aragorn's like, you know, maybe we should give him a second chance. You know, we're, we're like the, 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 we're like the king's like, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna cut this guy, and Aragorn's like, let's, let's not be AC here. Maybe he's okay. Yeah. No, that guy is not okay. Like <laughs> he's not. I'm, he doesn't like and even Aragorn kind of extends his hand and Wormtongue kind of spits in it. It's like Jesus, man, read the room. He is a piece of shit. (laughs) Like, really. And in the best way. Although I always find that moment um, kind of moving where he um, beholds 
all of the people in the Triumph of the Will moment. Yeah. Yes. And like this solitary yeah. tear comes down his face. It's so oh, powerful. Yeah. Like, I'm not on his side, <laughs> but like, <laughs> let me just be clear. But you can recognise he's having his oh fuck moment. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of an amazing little yeah. mini performance there of just kind of like mm-hmm. fucking hell. Like this is so overwhelming. And it's again one of those gorgeous cinematic Peter Jackson moments mm-hmm. of just allowing us to sit with a thing and just be like, okay, this is so overwhelming because you're seeing this guy's face who's like, have I made a huge mistake or am I actually yeah. I made a on the winning team here? here? This is great. I'm not actually sure. Like, <laughs> I'm not sure what he's thinking, but I just, I love Our that man, are, are we the baddies? <laughs> yeah. And if so, am I going to get Eowyn in? Yeah, I do feel feel like when we destroy like Helm's Deep, there's a good chance that everybody's going to die. Um, (laughs) That's again, like it's it's that idea of like, and again, I worry I'm being dismissive of Tolkien as the like the requisite like Lord of the Rings skeptic on here. But it's like it's such a good character moment for the reason you mentioned, which is like this guy seems to be finally thinking about the fact that he has betrayed everyone that he has ever known. And that like he has set in motion the murder of every man, woman and child that he has ever crossed paths with. And the fact that even like he's like during the warg sequence where he's like, they will have women and children with them. It's like, it's academic to him. It's it's like, it's, Mm. it's a strategy thing. But when he sees that crowd of like triumph of the will people, it's like, okay, yeah. So no, this is, this is an extinction level event. Yeah, totally. And like, I don't know that it feels like redemption for him or anything. It's just this sort of moment of like, let's just sit and watch what, like the moment of humanity. Yeah. 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 Cause it's not like he went away and like, Bringing it back to how this this movie feels a little bit more grounded, perhaps, and more more of a human perspective. It makes him a person. Yeah, like again, like he he yeah. feels he's a character who seems like he's parallel with Gollum in some ways. Like mm-hmm. he's this the Gollum of the like, obviously he's fallen under the sway of Sauron and the way that he's like deferential to Sauron as well. And the fact mm-hmm. that like he wants again, it's really creepy. And again, it's intentionally creepy. But he wants his precious. He wants this thing that he covets. It just happens that it's yeah. a woman and a living person. Mm. But you know this idea that yeah, that he he has this desire and he's kind of been consumed by it, and the fact that there is maybe the possibility of humanity buried somewhere underneath that. I do also love the bit where like after they kick him out and after like Aragorn does mm-hmm. the Frodo thing of no 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 don't kill him again the literal parallel to Sam being like we should probably just stab him right yeah. we should just like leave him to die. Um, Aragorn's like <laughs> yeah. no 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 take a chill pill there. Uh, but I do love that like he rides out of town with like a defiant fuck you all like there's no <laughs> yeah. there's, there's no apology there's no like timidness he's not like no okay. I respect this. You're you're all great men. I'm just going to get out of here. It's like, no, fuck you yeah. guys. No, there's no tail between the legs there. Like, it is like, well, I'm off to my boss and he is going to kick your ass. <laughs> when I tell Saruman, he's going to be so mad. <laughs> uh, I, I love this. Again, it's a small touch, but the bit where they're playing, again, that industrialization thing where Saruman has like, how, where he's like, there is one way in and it's this little grate. And I, I'm like, Oh, yeah. I'm like, also, how is he the only person who knows about the great? Why Why isn't, like, Aragorn manning the great? Uh, though it does give us... Hey, he can't do everything, Darren. <laughs> because explosives don't exist yes. in the world of Lord of the Rings. Even though fireworks do. So, <laughs> consider that. Ooh. <laughs> but the whole idea is just, like, how can fire undo stone? Where it's like, yeah. has nobody made a bomb? 
Nobody's made a bomb alert well, they, before. The the, uh, the the fireworks only undo tents. <laughs> <laughs> But, like the, the, I love that shot where he like he's holding the candle over it and Saruman mm-hmm. is just like look I humor oh. you most of the time but he's like fuck yeah. off um, it's like this, again that Christopher Lee thing where he just kind of puts the hand and I was like no 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 I I yeah just keep the flame away from an open flame but I love the chariot of fire orc oh yeah with the, with the yeah, torch yeah. doing the <laughs> slow motion run where I kind of want to play the, the do 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 <laughs> Like he plays it like it's his big moment. He's like, right, lads, I am gonna go for this. <laughs> it's, it's my time to shine. Mom said I'd never amount to anything, but it's here like I like four arrows in him and he's like, yeah. Nope, nobody's taking this away from me. It's like finally I will see me was a shine like chrome on the Fury Road. Um witness me, witness me. <laughs> and okay, again, this is one of the things where I maybe this is something you two can explain to me, and maybe this is where I'm I'm gonna be a bit of a killjoy. Gandalf the White. What is the deal with that? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't question it. I choose not to. <laughs> is it not um, a, a serious answer here? Is, is it not um, in the mythology, which has gone rusty in my head now, that like there's levels of wizard and Saruman yeah. kind of um, ab- ab- abdicates himself, perhaps by way of his behavior from being the white wizard. So Gandalf gets a promotion. Oh, is that what it is? I, I think that's what it's supposed to be. I'm sure there's some some angry Tolkien fan will reply to this on Twitter and tell you <laughs> the problem. Shaking his fist in the it's air. It's been a minute since I read my my Lord of the Rings mythology, but I same think that's what it is. When I, I okay, when I what I seem to gather from, and again, I am not a Tolkien nerd. I am not pretending to be a Tolkien nerd, but like oh, but the thing. Also, doesn't Gandalf say? Sorry to interrupt. Doesn't Gandalf say that at some point? I am Saruman yeah. the White, or. So, yeah, Sir Gandalf the White, or what Saruman should have yes. been, or something like that. Right. So it's kind of like a franchise reboot, like a James Gunn situation. It's like let's do this thing over and pretend the first one never happened. So it's kind of like when a when a Slayer dies, another Slayer gets put in place. <laughs> yeah, something <laughs> not dissimilar. So so he just had like really good timing when it came to the whole dying from the Balrog thing. Uh, I like. Sorry, Gandalf. We can we can send you back to Earth. Uh, it turns out there's a vacancy uh, in a White Wizard department. <laughs> But uh, isn't that the thing, though? The thing is that, like, again, this is the whole pop Christianity thing where the wizards are basically angels. And it's something that, you know, is made a bit more explicit in the Rings of Power where you have this idea that, you know, slight spoiler, but it's possible that they could have been sent to Earth on fiery trails. Mm. Again, like Lucifer being exiled from heaven in like Milton's Paradise Lost or whatever. Fiery, the angels fell and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but the idea that, yeah, they're basically, they're they're called wizards, but they are basically angels. And you have this idea that, like, according to Tolkien himself, like, in the letters that he wrote, Gandalf the White was sent back by, and I apologize, I'm going to mangle this, Iru Iluvatar, who is basically, like, God, he above all, um, who kind of sits on top of this world of Middle-earth, who stands in judgment, uh, and who basically exists kind of as this again godlike figure um and again the idea and it, it, it's something that comes up more in the rings of power that you have this idea that middle earth is caught in this battle between you know iru iluvatar and morgoth who are basically god and lucifer wrestling for the soul of man yeah but the idea that like gandalf dies and he goes to heaven uh and he's basically he gets there and god's like look you're you're not i'm not done with you yet you know, that, that kind of speech he gives when he's talking to, to Aragorn, he says, Darkness took me, 
and I strayed out of thought and time. Stars wheeled overhead, and every day was as long as a life age of the earth. But it was not the end. I felt life in me again. I've been sent back until my task is done. Mm-hmm. So you basically have, like, God just straight up telling Gandalf, I'm not done with you yet. You need to go back to Middle-earth and sort this stuff like out. Like Clarence. <laughs> <laughs> Every time. I see. <laughs> this, there is a Christmas reference for everything. <laughs> Every time a Balrog dies, uh, an angel gets his white robe, I guess. Or, um. His white wig. I think there's something in, and again, I might be misremembering, I feel like Galadriel is meant to be the one who resurrects him. But again, oh, right. I'm misremembering that. Or I might have just imagined that entirely. But I feel like Galadriel is involved in some way. But, it, and again, this gets to the kind of Christianness of the, because Tolkien is, is mm-hmm. a Christian writer. He was writing at Oxford, I think, around the same time as C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is notably a bit less, a bit more subtle in his Christian allegory than C.S. Lewis <laughs> is, to be fair. Um, but, like, there is something there in the idea that, like, God just says, nope, you're, you're not done here yet. yet. Yeah, that's it exactly. This motherfucker's yeah. done rogue, go sort them out. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, you, you don't get to punch your ticket that early, Gandalf. I'm afraid. Uh, we <laughs> signed three a three picture deal, Sir Ian. Um, you're gonna come back. Uh, but like, yeah, the the idea that yeah, God's just like, no, 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 you're not. We're not done. You haven't served your purpose. And and again, this thing that runs through the films that I find really interesting, where even if not even if even when it's it like sh- slight spoiler for the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, Sauron's not going to win. Um, Sauron was never going to win. Um, but the idea that, like, even when these people win, it's it's over anyway. Like that, like these this this earth that they have known, this world that they have known, will never be coming back anyway. Mm. Um, and the fact that the, the idea that it's all over anyway before it even begins, where like he's like, I there's a moment where before he gets on the horse to go and look for the riders of Rohan who've gone rogue, he like turns to Aragorn. He says. You know, I, I spent 600 lives of men here and now, now I'm running out of time. I have no time. That's it, exactly. Yeah. I, I, I Like, I find something, and again, it, it ties into that whole war thing where it's like, you, there's before and there's after. And there's no going back. There's no going yeah. back. Again, the, the, the there mm. and back again is, is an ironic title, perhaps, I think. Uh, all right, then. Is there anything else we want to talk about? Anything we haven't discussed already jumping out at us about The Lord of the Rings, whether in general or the two hour, two towers in particular? Can I give one? This doesn't have to be like an in-depth thing, but I really love the music in this as well. Like, I love the music in all of the movies, but I feel like the soundtrack to The Two Towers in particular is gorgeous because you get yeah. like that lovely kind of mournful. I'm not sure if it's a violin or cello kind of sound that you associate with Rohan. And then you have that lovely oh, big like sweeping... Yeah like choral moment with like the boy soprano when Gandalf and Aemir come back to rescue them all at Helm's Deep. And even like the, oh, fabulous. Yeah. It's, it's almost like a hymn effect that plays mm. when the Ents are marching in Isengard. Like it's just, oh, the music is so beautiful. I think, yeah, this, I this so soundtrack much. is the best one. Like I think yeah. there's just so many little moments because mm-hmm. the Rohan music is stunning. Like it is Gorgeous. just so amazing. And I don't know, the song at the end, the Go- Gollum song. Mm-hmm. Is that the most beautiful of the three theme songs? I don't know. Ooh. It's a tough uh, one. N- not in a world where the Annie Lennox one exists. What's it called? <laughs> I know. I was, I was going to say the Annie Lennox one is That's like, the one that won the Oscar, Into right? the West, yes. I love Into, Into the, the West. West. They not, Into the West is my funeral song. You'll all remember that when I die, okay? <laughs> it's mine too. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, I thought they should all have won Oscars in fairness, but um, yeah. but Gollum's song is so beautiful and melancholic and just stunning. Um, and the and very raw, like this very kind of agonized vibe. Yeah, yeah things are much that's more it. Soothing. It's yes, that one feels dark and tragic and weird, <laughs> weird as well. <laughs> um, did either of you ever go to any of the things with the um the National Concert Orchestra? Oh, were they doing playing along? I went to all of them. Yeah, of me course. too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they were amazing. Like they're just absolutely amazing. But the uh, like it does stand out. I think the two towers. Maybe there's just more variation in it or something. Mm-hmm. So good. I think it's just um, you get a real difference. I think in in the sounds and the textures because you have that kind of like choral hymn like effect on some of the music, and then other yeah. parts of it sound really what's the word like just 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 very real and very raw and kind of rough like the yeah kind of folk such scene. a mournful effect to the rohan theme yeah mm. um compared to like you know the more ethereal sound that goes with the ends or with some of the the footage from like rivendell and stuff like that it's just i think you get i mean you arguably get the same in fellowship but fellowship has a lot of old-fashioned very kind of rousing um, like cinematic themes going for it, and this one just feels so much more. Well, that's more Wagner esque, isn't it? Yeah, there's a lot more. Yeah, kind of like the bridge to Casadum and stuff like that. It's you know, it's it's very kind of sweeping and like mm. knocks you off your feet. And this one just feels a little bit more tailored, maybe to the world itself. I think if I was listening to one, it would be the Two Towers, like just to listen. Mm. Yeah, yeah, because it is that bit more melodic as well. I think. Mm. Yeah, I think like again, it, it it's that weird thing where it feels vaguely religious vaguely again i think mm-hmm. grace mentioned kind of choral kind of like a hymn mm. uh like that moment at the end where gandalf like lit- again very deus ex machina literally god from the machine but where like he rises with the sun behind him and, and again i think somebody some review that i read described it as like riding horses down a slope so steep you would normally snowboard down it but that moment yeah. where it's literally like this this you just don't question it <laughs> exactly well he is Uh, magic so (laughs) he he is magic um but But do you remember like how old you were when somebody said to you like oh yeah gandalf arrived in the east because he knew the sun would be coming up and it would just blind them (laughs) it's like there's nothing magic about this he was just fucking smart science (laughs) sun rises that way (laughs) yeah i I do love the idea of gandalf wasting a whole day to circle around and get in position not yet lads like like, not yet lads not yet not yet Gan- Gandalf, like 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 Ian McKellen, the big drama queen that he is. Um, like I do love, by the way, that like um, again, Dorif. Weirdly enough, Dorif seems to be the person who talks the most about like the day to day running of the of the movie. But he's like, yeah, Christopher Lee was the kind of you know Lee was very studious. He reads the books, you know, once every year. He talks very clearly, very with purpose. He you know remembers and has experience, and he'd offer advice on how to frame it. But Sir Ian would just talk to anybody about anything for however long it took. Um, and I just love the idea of kind of Sir Ian kind of just being this kind of dramatic presence. And I do love the idea of Gandalf being like, no, you know, I did say dawn on the fifth day. So if, if I arrive on the fourth day, that'll just be uncomfortable. We'll let the siege continue. Um, just be, I want the entrance to be kind of maximum dramatics here. Is Is Gandalf like... Again, this is one of those things where it's not really a question because this is a story. It's not a gossip about imaginary people. But is Gandalf kind of a crap friend? I I had a lot of problems with Gandalf when I was younger, which again, I appreciate him more as an adult. But when I was watching this for the first time, I was like, he just fucks off. Like, he just fucks off and leaves him there. And like, I knew, like, you know what he's going to do and you know it's important. And this isn't a world where they can 
like phone him or and be like yo turn around please yeah. like somebody has to physically go and get him but there's also a moment where you're like did it and okay maybe it had to be Gandalf and his like magical horse that's like somehow the lord of all horses because they also apparently have a weirdly aristocratic equine society um, and he's the only one who could get there in time or something like that but when I was younger I was just like he just nopes out of there and just leaves them to it like thanks he does Especially knowing Hayden is fucking useless and hates Aragorn just because he's from Gondor <laughs> and just he's in there to deal with all of that by himself. But also, like, hate to bring it up because, you know, this is the worst take of all time, but, like, he does have the little eagles that he could have just sent to drop the fucking <laughs> ring into the fucking thing. And he chooses not to or doesn't think of it. But, like, anyway. <laughs> part, part of me is like, yeah, it's like Gimli could be, like, this is like Gimli... Gimli's not really that useful over the course of the movie. And apparently that's something that like Lord of the Rings fans were very angry about was the idea that Gimli was comic relief because of course they were. They're like, they're not treating the character of Gimli seriously enough. Um, but like part of me's like, just send Gimli on the horse. Like keep Gandalf round during the siege. Yeah, he's magic. G- oh, we we, we don't, don't trust him to not be distracted by like a steak and beer somewhere. <laughs> fair, fair point. <laughs> or to fall off crack um, his head and die. That is fair. He died under a horse. Um, oh, by the way, like my, again, re- again, this is an example of like how minute the detail planning is on this. One of the big issues that the production design had was designing the saddles for the wargs because they figured out that like wargs have to be carnivorous. They're obviously they're not horses. So their spines have to be able to curve and bend, which is what carnivores do. Um, so how do you design a saddle for a creature that spine can bend and contort? Apparently that was one of the big, uh, I love that Charlene's like actually thinking about this. Yeah. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> give, give, give me half an hour and a pencil and we'll figure this out. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, yeah, anyway, sorry. So yeah, that 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 I do find, I do like Gandalf just noping out of the movie for like I think I forgive a lot for in Gandalf by just going like, "Oh, he just knows." <laughs> this is just the right thing because he's Gandalf, so he just knows. <laughs> I just trust him implicitly. Yeah. I'm such I I'm such a like well-behaved audience member. I just go along with things because I'm just like, "Well, it's telling me I should go along with it." So I'm going to go along with it. The movie seems to know what it's doing. I trust yeah. it. It's- <laughs> Peter Jackson seems to know what he's up to. Part of me is also wondering how much of the climax of the movie Aragorn is spending just going like, fuck, I was talking to Omir like just three hours ago. (laughs) Just three hours earlier. (laughs) Maybe Uh, I should have said check in with us in about a day. We'll we'll sort this stuff out. It's like, Gandalf, and again, like, and again, the Gandalf drama queen aspect of it, I love. And again, like, this isn't a criticism, I unironically love it. The bit where they go to the, the forest. And a white wizard is just around the corner. Oh yeah! And he like he he, he dis like he he knocks the arrow out of the way out of the air. He like throws Gimli back. He makes the sword that Aragorn is holding like hot, and then speaks in Christopher Lee's voice for like three or four lines instead of just going, "Oh, by the way, I'm your friend. I'm I'm Ian McKellen again." Um, I got the impression he didn't know who he was, but then he just did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. that's fine. Um, he knows what he's doing. <laughs> Um, Someone somewhere knows the answer to that, so yeah, whatever. Yeah, it, it, it all makes sense. It all it all makes sense. Um, all right, then I think then that about wraps it up uh, with regards to talking about Lord of the Rings, the Two Towers. Um, I think we talked about food waste and that they don't get to eat that stew. Mm. In terms of inappropriate smoking, I mean those orcs are just burning and pillaging across the the you know Rohan. So I guess Rohan itself is inappropriately smoking at this moment in time. Um, 
And in terms of, I'm not going to try and do a RoboCop reference. That's Andrew's thing. But uh, I'm sure there has to be a RoboCop reference in here as well. Mm. Oh, how did I miss it? It's it's Gandalf. I mean, we talked here like Gandalf is kind of like a Jesus Christ allegory where he he dies and he is resurrected so he can save mankind. He's kind of a Middle Earth Jesus story. And, (laughs) you know, kids, let me tell you about a guy who's an American Jesus story. That's right. Obligatory RoboCop reference. (laughs) Boom. (laughs) Nailed it. I hope Andrew's proud. Uh, Oh, and just one more thing from my notes. Apologies about this. Uh, But the... We talked about Gollum and we talked about the CGI revolution that took place there. Apparently, this movie features Weta's first entirely computer-generated stand-in for an actor. And that is during the scene, and it happens very, very briefly, but during the warg attack, where Legolas, like, while Gimli is riding a horse... Oh, the bit of him jumping on the horse. Legolas loops his arm around the horse and jumps up on top on the back of him. That's an entirely CGI. Yeah. I've always wondered how the <laughs> feck they did that because it's mental. Who even came up with that as a stunt? It's mental. Oh, that, that, <laughs> that's awkward again, looking this... though. Like this is the, the hand that he uses is like he's swinging himself the wrong way with the yeah. wrong, wrong hand. Like it's. It... That's why it's so miraculous. It's like uncanny. So you're just like, whoa, what? That doesn't even make sense. Which again, as a very well-behaved audience member, I'm just like, cool, great. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm on board. Go with go it. On. Like, and again, sorry, like, I, I worry that now we're going to spend 20 minutes on Legolas. But like, it is. I do love that whenever the CGI guys at Weta talk about this, they are very clear. Orlando Bloom was not allowed to touch real arrows uh, for like liability purposes. So oh, every time okay. he fires an oh. arrow on screen, it is CGI. What a pain in the hole for them. Yeah. To animate all of those. Good Lord. It also probably feels like it's really embarrassing for Orlando Bloom, where it's like, so I'm playing a guy. Yeah. And he's like, he's a he's an archer. That's his thing. Right. So like, yeah. So I get to play with arrows. It's like, no, <laughs> wow. you just get, you just get to stand there. Yeah. That's so like, grim. That's, the poor guy. <laughs> that's my one thing. It's like, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's your one thing. Um, <laughs> You get a scene here where you threaten to leave and then I leave. No, no, you, you change your mind two no, scenes no. later. Um, <laughs> yeah. But like the, the CGI Legolas happens because Bloom, while they were shooting that sequence, Bloom fell off a horse and broke his ribs. Ah. And so he couldn't get on a horse again to shoot footage of him leaving. Uh, Jackson apparently forgot about it while they were shooting that and then got to the editing bay. And I, I love this because oh, he got to the editing bay and he's like, there's no footage that explains how Legolas got back on a horse to be on a horse in a later scene. And most directors would be like, we'll just assume that it happened while the camera wasn't watching. Yeah, uh, but Jackson's people like, won't no, question no, that. Need- it's fine. I would yeah. accept that. Yeah, Jack's <laughs> like, no, we, we need to explain this on screen. So while we don't have a shot of Legolas getting on a horse, we do have a shot of Gimli riding a horse. So what if we superimpose Legolas in front of the horse and just have him CGI <laughs> swoop around onto the back without Gimli stopping? Um, and like again surely there was an easier way to do that (laughs) surely well I mean look when you're employing these like 260 people working 24 hours a day for a year you generate work for them that's true it's like the Gollum servers offline for the weekend Uh, we're you know they're they're busy rendering his left eyeball or something his right eyeball's already done it's like CGI Legolas CGI Legolas Um, and I do and again this is very nerdy uh, but I do like that people have done the physics on this right so in Fellowship Legolas walks on the snow without stepping in the snow. So when they're trailing through the snow, the characters leave footprints. Legolas walks on the snow. 
Lord of the Rings fans, who are, as we've noted, a very obsessive bunch, have done the maths on this and have determined that logically, for him to be able to do that, the most that Legolas can weigh is about 20 kilograms in total for his whole body. Okay. And therefore, use... I mean, elves only eat leaves. What? <laughs> maybe. Like, maybe he does only weigh 20 kilos. Maybe. His, his bones are hollow. Um, that's why he's able to bend that and way. And it's all in his hair. <laughs> that's, it. that's the weight is in his hair. Well, that, that's the... Um, that's the like that's the, they asked a phys, they asked like a physicist or a physics expert about that sequence where Legolas jumps on the horse and he's like that makes no sense he would have to break every bone in his body in order to be able to do that and they're like mm-hmm. but wait we've done the maths he only weighs twenty kilograms and the physicist <laughs> and I love that the physics expert is like in response to that he's like sure fine whatever I guess it could work then um, yeah do I have to sign something to get you to go away he's also basically a cat so. And yeah, also, <laughs> he is a cat. That's a good way of putting yeah. it. We see what he does to the Oliphant in the third movie. Exactly. Only a cat could pull that off. Exactly. <laughs> I do love the skateboard sequence as well. It's fabulous. Proper. proper. Like, I, I am up for Legolas stupid nonsense stunts. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just, I love it. like, they're so stupid. <laughs> but I love it. She, Charlene, this is why The Hobbit is three movies long. Because um, oh. Peter Jackson was like, look, Charlene loves Legolas. If only it were just three movies about Legolas. Exactly. <laughs> I'd like it a lot better. <laughs> so you're saying I let Peter Jackson away with too much. And yeah, if I hadn't it. done that, then the fucking Hobbit movies wouldn't be so terrible. That, that's it. You need to be asking, Shit. like, really? He only weighs 20 kilograms, Peter? That's what you need to be asking. Damn it, Charlene. Um, I failed all right all. then. <laughs> This is this is all all your fault individually, not us as a culture. You individually. <laughs> um, all right. So, what we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask our guests to recommend something, something they're enjoying at the moment. It be something related to the movie, something unrelated to the movie, just something that brings them joy in these uncertain times. So, to give well, normally in this space, I would ask Andrew to go first to give Charlene and Grace a chance to think about it. <laughs> so, I guess I'm gonna go first then to fill the gap, and I have not thought about this at all. So I'm going to say House of the Dragon. I quite enjoyed the first season of House of the Dragon. I thought it was very good. Nice fantasy adjacent property. Uh, and again, the influence of Lord of the Rings. If Lord of the Rings didn't happen, Game of Thrones wouldn't have happened. Battle of Helm's Deep here is a huge influence on all of the battles in uh, Game of Thrones, if you want to track the movie's influence. So yeah, I would recommend it on those grounds and and or on Disney+. Plus. Yeah. Uh, I also thought it was fantastic. Uh, I was very impressed. I was maybe a little burnt out on Star Wars quote content unquote um and uh and or kind of like i remember watching it and like 15 minutes in being like is this good like like being skeptical like having to be one over it was like Gollum. it's like star wars loves me (laughs) star wars would never hurt me and the other ass like ah stupid darren star wars always hurt you um but eventually good darren won in the end all right so Grace, what would you recommend? What are you enjoying at the moment? Um, I actually have no idea what to say. I barely have watched anything in about a month, and I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> I watched Die Hard on Friday at the Lighthouse. Woo-woo. That was the first movie I'd watched in a month. Um, what? Uh, I've been enjoying Bob's Burgers. Which is on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> I watch that occasionally with dinners, and that is on Disney, and it's great fun. That's, the, that's literally the only thing I can think of. <laughs> What and Die Hard's a great recommendation for people yeah. too. That's it. And, yeah. and it's very seasonal as well. Like it, it is yeah. it is a Christmas movie. Uh undeniably and uncontroversially a Christmas movie, right? Um 
And Charlene, what are you enjoying at the moment? What do you recommend for listeners? Um, well, as soon as I'm finished here, I'm going to watch the very last episode of season two of The White Lotus, which I have been Ooh. enjoying. Um, I I, don't, I feel like everyone's already like well aware of The White Lotus, so it's probably a shit recommendation. Um, and I was also going to say that I really enjoyed the second season of Chucky, but I think I actually recommended the first season of Chucky last, last time, time I was on the year. podcast. So, um, but I will say, if you like really stupid things, then... <laughs> that reference may be setting up something that may or may not be happening next year. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, so actually, that is really good fun and it ends at Christmas, so it's kind of seasonal. Ooh, yeah. Um, starts at Halloween, ends at Christmas, and it's and it stars Grima Wormtongue himself as well. Yeah. It stars Grima Wormtongue himself. Um, apart from that, um, I I watched The Fablemans last week, and that'll be out in January, and I just think it's like the best. Even it broke it. my heart. It is just yeah. fabulous, and like, yeah, I'd have a like a hit and miss kind of relationship with Spielberg. I wouldn't be like a diehard Spielberg head, but like this is just. You mean you don't love the terminal and always <laughs> and. Uh... Not all, not all of them. Um, but like, so I wouldn't Hook? just like, oh, well, kind of do like Hook. Really? You like um, Hook? Hook kind of, like... like it's kind of way up my alley, you know, this whole nonsense camp. <laughs> I thought everyone shit. liked like, Hook. I'm into that. <laughs> I'm into that. <laughs> oh, okay. 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 I love that I, I've been the guy on the podcast who's like, I'm not sure about Lord of the Rings and it's been fine. But I'm like, say one word about Hook. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I thought The Fablemans was beautiful and maybe come out like floating on air about like how Spielberg is the greatest of all time, mm-hmm. which is not something I necessarily believe. But like, maybe he is. I don't know anymore. <laughs> What's amazing about The Fablemans is it's Spielberg making a movie about himself being the greatest yeah. of all time. And you're like, <laughs> you know what? He has a point. And it still doesn't feel like te- like embarrassingly yeah. cringy vanity yes. project even though like it kind of is by its definition like, but yeah theoretically it is but I, I, again really moving and really depressed like again it, it's we came out like I came out talking to a friend of the podcast Luke Dunn and it's like so that's basically his version of like Nolan's Oppenheimer right this is the the I am become death I have created something monstrous yeah um, <laughs> kind like, of is, like I have been cursed I have this gift is a curse that I have been found with <laughs> to see these things I am Cassandra <laughs> it is it's so bizarre like it's it's a it's a really um singular piece of work <laughs> yeah um yeah anyway I, I loved it made me feel lovely <laughs> oh okay. and and yeah would be my favorite Spielberg since uh Catch Me If You Can I think easily um and I like his 21st century output all right so if people are looking for a bit more grace a bit more Charlene online where can they find you so Charlene where are you at what you up to um I'm not I'm just I'm just on Twitter probably and <laughs> I don't know, not really saying much retweeting stuff about Christmas horror films and that kind of thing <laughs> that's about it at Charlene Leiden that's where you find me perfect and grace where can we find you watch at where are you up um I have not logged into Twitter in six weeks but if you want to go I think I can't actually remember the last time I was on there. But if you want to submit a follow request that I will see in three months, I'm at. <laughs> and the only other thing I've been doing lately is writing fan fiction, and I'm not going to tell you what it's about. So you can just oh, okay. why <laughs> live with that. You can't drop that. Okay, can you tease? Can you offer some sort of direction? It's a band. It's a band. It's it's not a movie uh, one. All right. And it's a very male skewing fandom, unfortunately. So Ooh. I have been. I have had to write my own fan fiction because there's like 40 of them out there because men are lame and don't write fan fiction so here we are I don't write good fan fiction Grace you're killing me <laughs> yeah I know like, hold on I love that myself and Charlene are trying to put this together I don't think Please, well I you, don't you you could have a guess it's like it, this band has like 30 something years of history so I'll, I'll let you try and guess and 
destroy my reputation <laughs> if you guess correctly. There's just something. Oh no, I no, I have no idea. I, this is this is what we need Andrew for. This is this is again. We, podcast always misses Andrew when he's not here. This is particularly feels like an Andrew question because the first place I'm going is Brussels, and that is wrong. I don't even need to say that to hear that that's wrong. Um, Darren, you are correct. I'm afraid. Well done! Out loud, Darren, you need to edit this out. If somebody goes and finds this story I've written, I will literally never live it down. Okay, okay, okay. What? Why not? Okay, I will. I will bleep because the name of the. It's so small. Be able to narrow down which one. Is. <laughs> that, I was about yeah, to that's say, crazy. Like, it does feel like there's not a not a lot of um. There's not a, like a big pool of fiction to narrow it down. It's like so we narrowed it down to these 350 entries, and it's like okay, so I will bleep the name of the band. <laughs> <laughs> oh lordy but yes that's all i've been doing for the past month so <laughs> i am inordinately proud of myself for that, that is i'm i'm stunned darren i'm stunned well done. Um, shot in the dark <laughs> all right um and i don't know how to follow that so you can follow the podcast at at the 250 we were on stitcher on soundcloud on itunes wherever good podcasts are found We'll be back next week. Uh, Andrew will definitely be back next week because we have recorded our Christmas episode ahead of time. Um, so we'll be talking about the fantastic The Life of Brian, which I think counts as a sort of Christmas adjacent movie. Yeah, it kind of does. With the wonderful Richard Newby from The Hollywood Reporter uh, and Vulture and various other places like that. Arguably one of the greatest film critics and film writers of the current moment. So we're very thrilled to have him on and slightly embarrassed that we have to subject him to the stuff that we subject him to. <laughs> um but no, it's a really good discussion. Uh, I really look forward to it. So that'll be out next week. Then we may end up taking a bit of a breather, uh, trying to figure stuff out, maybe get a bit of ahead of ourselves in terms of laying tracks. But we'll figure that all that out next year. Um, thank you very much, Charlene. Thank you very much, Grace. This has been a pleasure. Talk to you both soon. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers. Bye. Thank you.